0: You got to start low and then get high with Marino brothers? (laughs) The Marino brothers. The Marino brothers! That's how he yells. Yeah. I'm refining it. I'm refining it. You know? Any any good impressions, they take time. You got to work out the
1: case. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the
0: things straight once and for all. Clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell oh, you the truth, this
2: guy's starting to get online. <laughs> you want to crown him?
1: Then crown your ass. But they are
0: who we thought they
2: were. And we let him on the floor. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. very,
0: very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of... The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me this week, as always, are Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. Oh, very nice. And for those who don't know, joining us maybe for the first time, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which uh, one of us... Picks a topic, a theme for the week. And the other two have to bring movies to the table to address that topic, to meet the topic, maybe even challenge the topic a little bit. Now, I was up this week. And as I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, you know, I felt like we had a few weeks here where, you know, things have been a little dark.
2: We've been down in the dirt.
0: Yeah, we've been we've been mucking it up a little bit, you know. And and I think the real the real breaking point, the the straw on the proverbial camel's back, was uh, was our deep dive into Lars von Trier last <laughs> weekend. And the house of
2: the Jack Belton. It's time to break away.
0: Yeah, we need to to certainly break away. We need uh, good vibes on the podcast. And you know, aside from that we were talking about it before and and i'm sure everybody around is 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 really particularly um feeling the the weight of the world on their shoulders these days you know it's been a tough couple years and and certainly right now it seems like you turn on the news and and things only seem to be getting worse so so i was thinking of an age old tradition of mine which is you know when you take a sick day when you when you need a a mental health day as my mom would call it one of my best remedies was a certain type of movie a feel good movie i call them sick day movies you know A, a movie that's just gonna pick up your spirits a movie that's not gonna demand too much from you intellectually you know but something that's just gonna just gonna make all the boo-boos go away, you know, all the emotional aches and pains uh, to to just sort of dissipate. So that's what I asked you both to bring, because I felt we needed it, and the world needs it right now. So I asked you to bring me posi vibes only this week, and I have to say uh, it did the trick. You know, one made me laugh uh, my ass off. The other one was just... Uh, making me feel very warm inside, tugging all the the heartstrings in the in in the right way. So very happy and very excited to to talk about the films you both selected for this week. So without further ado, let's just get into that good good stuff that you brought, uh, Marsh. Why don't you tell us about the film that you brought?
2: Sure. When I was growing up, uh, I didn't have a lot of sick days because uh, I really didn't get sick a lot, and also uh, my mom wouldn't let me miss school even if maybe I was a little sick or or whatever, you know, is that kind of thing. However, yeah, I love movies, and I and I love to take a, a mental health day and just veg out on some movies. Who doesn't? And the film I selected is a film that I've loved for a very long time. It's a film that I was introduced to probably when I was, yeah, an adolescent by my dad, who uh, is from Chicago, but went to college in Indiana at Purdue University. And so, you know, a guy like that who's got ties to friends and other people in Indiana certainly loves the classic 1979 Peter Yates film Breaking Away, which of course takes place in Bloomington, Indiana on and around the campus of Indiana University. And Breaking Away concerns the lives of four 19-year-olds who are uh, a year removed from graduating high school, uh, and they're kind of just bumming around because they're townies. They're from working-class families in Bloomington, and, and all around them is this vibrant college life that they're excluded from. Uh, And these particular characters, this group of friends, are Dave, played by Dennis Christopher, who when the film opens is introduced as having a uh, fanatical obsession with Italian culture and cycling. We've also got Mike, played by Dennis Quaid. He's the jock of the group. He's the former high school football quarterback, now having a crisis of self-worth, now that he's got nothing else to do and looking like a snack too yeah looking like the Marlboro man himself we've got Cyril played by Daniel Stern in his first screen appearance as the you guessed it tall gangly funny one (laughs) the oddball yeah the goofball Uh, and then (laughs) last but not least although least in stature of course is Moocher as played by Jackie Earl Haley, the Short King himself, and Moocher is uh, in love with Nancy, his girlfriend, and they're planning on getting married, and uh, that's what he's got going on. And so these four friends are, are navigating, you know, this ennui after high school. They've all been fired from the A and grocery store, so they go swimming in the rock quarry and fight with the local frat boys you the know college boys <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah again uh, a movie i've loved a, a very very long time and, and also a, a personal film to me as well because when i was in undergrad in the mid aughts i had friends who went to indiana university and i got to see the little 500 bicycle race In the flesh, as this film does, yes, climax with a college bike race, 200 laps around a track. Uh, So I've been there, man. You know, I've I've seen the whole thing go down in real life. Mm -hmm. And
0: it is a film that has been uh, addressed uh, very briefly earlier uh, in one of our previous episodes when we did our... Episode on cycle, uh, cycling movies, on
2: bike movies, and, and you had mentioned this film as as your top pick. It's uplifting, makes you feel good. It's got all that good stuff, and it's got that sun-kissed Midwestern mm. light and that vibe of just yes, a soft does. summer, you know. Ah, it's just beautiful, you know, very naturalistic, and uh, yeah, performances are great, scripts great. We'll, we'll get into it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's, it's already taken me.
0: <laughs> just hearing you talk about it again, just thinking about it. And I, I, it hasn't been too long since I just watched it. And yeah. I'm, I'm there, I'm there. So, yeah, thank you, Marsh. Now, Ryan, what about you? What'd you bring to the table this week? I very nearly also chose
3: a film I had recommended on a previous episode, a film that gives me a lot of comfort now, and that's the film Kenny and Company. But I, you know, it's such a rich prompt, and I was reflecting on it and trying to think about how I wanted to define it for myself. Did I want to pick something that I would consider cinematic comfort food like in my adult years, or did I actually want to return to something like an object that was very literally a sick day movie for me when I was uh, a young lad. And that's the avenue I decided to explore with a little bit of fear, wondering like, okay, if I return to any of these films, will the experience be sour? Will it not be comforting? Am I going to feel that they've aged poorly? And I considered some options. I I really liked the Brendan Fraser George of the Jungle when I was a kid. Uh, Their, like, Night at the Roxbury was weirdly attractive to me. (laughs) But I thought I'd go with the safest bet and one that really, I think, captures the way I felt as a child and like what I found funny and the things that appealed to me. Uh, And that is evoked through the 1997 film by Brian Robbins, Good Burger. And for those who haven't seen Good Burger or who aren't familiar with it, it's essentially the story of two young men played by Keenan and Kel from the Keenan and Kel show on Nickelodeon, and also from all that. Um, and this film itself is had its genesis from all that. It was originally a sketch. Uh, this is from an era where a lot of like sketch shows uh, had their own skits adapted into films, thinking of like Wayne's World from the 90s or even the Blues Brothers a little bit earlier from SNL. So they thought, why don't we adapt, you know, one of our Nickelodeon programs from all that, uh, a skit into its own feature. Kel plays a boy named Ed. Ed lives to work. He works at Good Burger as the man who takes the order. He, He sleeps in his uniform, he showers in his uniform. He has got Good Burger on the brain. He is someone who lives and breathes labor. Keenan plays a young man named Dexter, who is the exact opposite. He lives and breathes summer. He's got his sights set on the summer ahead. He is free and unencumbered from school, and he can't wait to just have a kick-ass time. Uh, But that takes a turn. When... As Ed is on his way to Good Burger, as he's running a little bit late and he can't wait to you know start taking orders, as he's riding his rollerblades, he gets in Dexter's way, and Dexter swerves out to avoid crashing into him, and he crashes in to another car. The other driver is played by Sinbad, uh, who is is Dexter's teacher. And he ends up in a trap where now, ah, my summer is ruined. I can't be carefree. I can't live wild and free. I have to pay back this debt and get a summer job. And all the while, there is another mega corporation burger joint opening across the street from the comfortable little small town burger joint of Good Burger. And that's Mondo Burger, run by a fascist dictator of sorts uh, named Ugh. Kurt. Boo Kurt, boo Kurt, nasty man. And he runs a very colorful, weirdly futuristic, very 90s mega corporation burger joint. And his goal is just to destroy all the competition and global
0: domination.
3: Global domination. And that's essentially how the film works. And we'll, we'll get into the, the twists and turns that develop along the way for how Good Burger thinks it can sort of keep going. But it's a film full of wild characters. It's got Abe Vigoda, uh, who plays like an elderly man working at the at the at the the burger joint, you know, just like barely getting by, taking oxygen throughout. And I had a very nice time returning to it. It did bring me back to the way I felt as a child. It's been so long since I've I've seen Good Burger. It, It was really weird. Seeing it, like, on a larger television, on the weird, cold Netflix scan, the HD scan, I, I kind of wish I still had my own orange VHS copy, like the Nickelodeon orange VHS <laughs> have, yeah, of Good Burger. I have
2: that copy.
3: I should have had you mail it to me. That's. <laughs> I would have preferred to watch
2: it that way. And my copy has a custom cover. From... My Ooh. friend, my friend. I, oh, I, wow. don't, I don't know the origin of it, actually, but when he gave it to me, it's, it's the orange Nickelodeon tape, but with like mm-hmm. a, a homemade cover, with like a <laughs> picture of Keenan and Cal like printed out oh, on yeah. it, you know? Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> Probably got
0: destroyed the original <laughs> along the way somewhere.
2: Yeah, the cardboard box
3: from my VHS got like torn and shattered over the years, of course. If like you know, you take the tape out and you toss the the, the cardboard shell across the room. Um, but it's a film that kept me very warm as a child, and uh, it, it it gave me a lot of warmth this uh, the past couple days as I've been thinking about it and watching it again. So that is that's good burger from 1997.
0: Yeah, it it definitely made me feel that way as well, and I think. You know, specifically because, in the case of Good Burger, I had experienced all of that growing up. You know, breaking away is a, is is a glimpse into uh, a time period I didn't live through. You know, I didn't experience, but I think from that extra like layer of of just even yeah, just nostalgia, uh, so much of the the detritus you could say in that film. Uh, was was just like ringing bells for me and reminding me reminding me of things that that I used to get such joy out of and they're they're small, simple things. Uh, for example, there's just a moment where they're like sitting down at a at a table together talking or something, and one of them has a has a bottle of Fruitopia juice. Yeah. and I was like, God. Damn, Fruitopia, man! I used to drink the shit out of Fruitopia, and then I think it's like right after that—that that like same shot. There's there's a blockbuster video in yeah. the background, you know, it's just the the bright blue ticket logo, mm-hmm. and and yeah, I mean, it's just it, it brought a lot back to me that that I hadn't thought about. Um, for for quite a while, seeing that the Good Burger itself was across the street
3: from a Blockbuster reminded me of how often I would go to Blockbuster and also the Video Goldmine uh, specifically to rent this film uh, until I finally had a copy of my own that I also like just watched endlessly. I think the
0: hallmark to me of a good sick day, from from my perspective, you know, a good sick day movie from from my perspective is a certain kind of brightness in the visual quality of the film Uh, you know and I I think that's that's something that both these films in their own ways really achieved you know when you're sick and and you're you're feeling down you're feeling gray color uh, just simply color seems to be so therapeutic and both of these films, <laughs> yeah, in sort of two opposite ends of the the brightness spectrum. One with this, you know, in in the case of uh, Breaking Away, this this this, as you mentioned in your intro, Marsh, this just glorious midwestern sunshine you know and the the green of the trees the trees that we all as midwestern boys
3: know so well and like an amber glow you know to everything yeah
0: yeah absolutely and then in the case of good burger just the absolute uh bonkers nickelodeon approach to like pop art color schemes that mm-hmm. that were so present in the, the mid to late 90s, uh, I mean, man, my eyes were, I, they were just popping throughout Good Burger. Like, I forgot movies
3: looked that way. Yeah, I was thinking about how intricate the production design of Good Burger was and thinking about contemporary films geared toward a similar demographic, just like children's films now. The way it's like the digital sheen of them kind of undercuts that color. You know, even if they are like artificially colorful films, contemporary digital films, it doesn't have that feel of like all these neon lights and colorful costumes and goofy cars that are burgers that you would find
2: in. In Goodberger. I mean, Good Burger honestly feels like, and I mean this in the best way possible, like it feels like there's no color correction. It's just like designed to yes. be bright and colorful on set with the costumes, with the decor and with the high key Hollywood lighting. There's like no, it, it, you know, right. It's not like saturated the way digital color like that would be. Right. So, yeah, it, it does feel very different uh, from anything that if you were trying to recreate that that look, like you couldn't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, you know, like we're in this in this period right now where where I think, you know like the 90s aesthetic is is very trendy you know for people mm-hmm. to try to invoke or explore but but i i just can't help but but feeling when i see you know movies or tv shows or you know just bullshit people try to post on on social media of like you know 90s kids and 90s feelings and 90s style i'm just like it, it none of it looks right to me i'm like no it's it's like the the colors aren't popping enough. This isn't bright enough. This isn't, you know, th- this is there, there's still even something kind of uh clinical about the approach that people are trying to take with the 90s. Yeah. And and you know, even if they, they get the like chunky shoes right or some of the fashion, uh, it's it's just that it's that color palette
2: yeah. that and it's like a like an incoherent like counterintuitive color palette you know yes. that's what the 90s is uh and people don't understand right you you if you overly design that it's not going to feel like the zany purples you have in this movie or whatever
0: yeah yeah I honestly was just marveling throughout the film at, at how how amazing it looked, you know, for some, relatively speaking, like just cheapo kids movie. Uh, yeah,
2: sketch comedy adaptation. <laughs> right,
0: you <laughs> yeah. know, from like 97, <laughs> that's more or less a forgotten film among certain people.
3: Yeah, you have to wonder if maybe Nickelodeon was trying to purposely go all out with this film in the sense of reflecting on SNL skit cinema adaptations and trying to make sure that it was like up to that caliber because it really feels like it was they weren't withholding anything or cutting any corners like even just they're like we want all that to be treated just as seriously as all other sketch comedy shows i mean also nickelodeon was like an empire at that point too it's not like they were short on cash to produce a film
2: like that uh i don't know if you guys looked this up but uh you know this might explain why this film looks very good uh, the cinematography is by Mac Alberg, who is a Swedish cinematographer most known for working on Charles Band films. Oh. But he shot Reanimator and From Beyond, and he also shot Good Burger. Okay. So this guy knows how to light a scene, you yeah. know, like for real oh, especially yeah. scenes full of color
0: oh yeah you know reanimator for uh even being a horror movie now that i think about it it's it's such a bright horror film like it seems everything is happening with just like a lot of light around them uh a lot of color around them i mean it is for people who've never seen this movie just on that alone like this is a visual treat and the there's many of them there's as you pointed out in your intro ryan there's there's so many different locations and places they go and and things that they experience that that show such care and attention to that that just like giving you especially for like a young person like just something to be uh, like wowed by or impressed by a certain colorful busyness that yeah. that just fills you with the sense of vitality and yeah. and life, you know?
3: Definitely. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to really like going mini-golfing, and the mini-golfing sequence in Good Burger is like the ideal of what a mini-golf experience would look like. It's a giant castle full of all of these lights and then has that vibrant 90s color scheme to it. It looks like nothing could be more enjoyable, like date night going uh, to that mini golf course you know date night with Carmen
0: Electra at that (laughs) yeah Yeah. uncredited too I discovered she was uncredited in that role when it was originally released yeah
2: well I want to talk about the elephant in the room which is we've been talking about how it looks the visual style but we got to talk about uh the core of this film which is essentially like a Uh, a surrealist Dada performance from Kel Mitchell Mm -hmm. uh, as Ed. This is a crazy performance and I, and I love it.
0: Yeah. I honestly, when I was watching this was just thinking of, of that, Precisely, you know, to me, it it was on the level of like the Marx Brothers at times in that it was it was, yeah, like a a sort of chaotic send up of of the world and of business practices and, you know, corporations and fast food and high school and all that stuff. Uh, I mean, the film opens with basically like an, uh, an A burger hallucination? Yeah, yeah, a <laughs> burger hallucination. Like I was thinking of eight and a half, yes. you know? I was thinking sure. of like the great films oh that start yeah. with this, you know, like a, a, a traumatic dream sequence about work and and this this idea of like, as you said, Ryan, a man who like lives, eats, breathes, and sleeps burgers. That opening dream sequence is. It's nuts.
2: Don't sell me, Ed. Please. Ed. I want to stay here with you. We love you, Ed. Uh,
1: come with us, Ed. Fly, Ed. Fly. Yeah. Oh, ah, ah, I'm flying with Fast Fit. Ah, ah, woo. Wee! Oh, flying with hamburgers. Ah, ah, ah. whoa, o'clock.
2: Yeah. And like the, the waking up with his uniform on and then showering with his uniform on is like a chaplain gag, you know, about work. Like this guy is trapped uh, inside work, but it's also because he's just profoundly weird or touched or whatever you want to call him. But like Ed's whole thing is that he takes everything. Literally everything. Number one. And number two is that he also is just, like, a non-sequitur artist. Uh, And that's, like, those two impulses are, like, bouncing back and forth in this just truly bizarre, excessive performance.
0: In that sense, like, with both his wordplay and his, his physical comedy, he's kind of, like, a combination to me of, like, both Chico and Harpo, and... Uh, His friend is, you know, emerges as a sort of like Groucho character, the in-his-own-way goofy straight man, the guy that's trying to translate his madness, to translate his his bizarro approach to existence into something that can be profitable, you know, (laughs) successful, coherent, or something like that.
2: Yeah, or like fit into society or whatever it is, you know, channeling that. I
3: think it's so funny that designing this film and creating his character, or at least extending his character, was instead of adding a more realistic depth to him, they were just leaning in even harder into a quote-unquote, you could say caricature, but not even really because they're so committed to that surrealist aspect of his brain that it becomes a work of art within itself you know and it's funny because keenan was the one who really had all the success after this movie and just like throughout his career i mean he eventually ended up is uh, he? he's still on snl right yeah. or at yeah, least he's,
0: he, and he's terrible yeah he's not very good <laughs> he's horrible
3: and kel mitchell like really hasn't had uh, a ton of success at least comparatively to, to keenan but yeah looking back on this i mean he is I mean, he is the central figure, but he is what stands out as just, like, this incredibly committed and bizarre performance from
0: beginning to end. For me, very, like... Marxist way and I I mean the Marx brothers when I say Marxist in this in this case although there are some aspects to his character that uh evoke yeah. a sort of Marxist materialism if you think about it Absolutely. but but you know for for all the Marxes uh in this case the 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 brothers uh there's this awesome like bit that that to me just it it felt right out of a Marx Brothers film where there's you know a uh, a guy that that comes up to the to the counter and is very upset with his burger order you know and he's he's going at Ed because he he asked for a burger with nothing on it and and he was delivered by Ed just like a bun basically with with nothing in it but you said you wanted nothing on it Yes, well, I expected a meat patty. Dude, a meat patty is something. You said nothing. Fizz, is a meat patty something or nothing? Uh, something? I win. All right, that rips it. I am reporting your name to the manager. The manager already knows my name. Oh, I'll see you in hell. Okay, see you there! And it's like, yeah, it's again, this kind of like material, like materialist, literalist joke that, that was like straight out of the Marx Brothers to me.
3: And it's insane too, just thinking about that opening sequence again with the burgers with eyes floating around and him falling into that pit and then waking up and realizing he's a little bit late for work. The whole sequence, I mean, his house already feels like Pee-wee's fun house a little bit when you get that glimpse into his bedroom. But it also reminds me of a time just when comedies were visual when they had visual ideas i mean when was the last time you saw a contemporary comedy that is that zany and kind of a comic book way of having visual gags
2: in almost every frame of it i haven't seen a baby put through a basketball hoop like that in a while (laughs)
3: exactly oh my god Yes. Yeah, I mean so that funny. opening
2: again when when uh, Ed is is rollerblading to work as he's late and he's tearing ass down the street, he, he drag he drags a girl uh, <laughs> with a on a, with yeah. a jump rope. Yeah. Made uh, me think of <laughs> House that
3: Jack
0: <laughs> I was gonna say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of like the blood trail, you know. Yeah. She does like lay there like a corpse. Like she's like knocked out cold. Yeah, yeah and her head is just like yeah.
3: bumping and scraping against
2: the, the concrete. Ugh. It's crazy. Um yeah, and, and the whole movie is just, yeah, full of full of that. It's visual comedy, it's physical comedy, and it's verbal comedy, right? It's, it's trying to do all of these things, and I think, you know, succeeding for the most part. Like, uh, another, you know, a classic moment in this movie, and one that I love, is when uh, Ed is in the milkshake machine.
0: Ed! What are you doing inside the milkshake machine? Uh, trying to fix it. Did you turn on the switch?
2: And again, it's just like <laughs> this guy who will turn anything into just like a bizarre, funny situation. He's reappropriating the milkshake machine. Now it's a jacuzzi, like in his
3: mind, you know? Yeah. Me like slumped over on the couch, like nose stuffed full of boogers, you know, just sick, not feeling great. And I was like, Ooh, a strawberry jacuzzi. That sounds nice. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That's something I wanted as a boy.
0: Yeah. And I, I love that Ed, you know, especially this time watching it now as you know, a, 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 a man in his like late 30s, you know. I I see so many like wonderful qualities in his character that that probably like as a kid I would have just been like, yeah, he's goofy and and that's that's what I like. I like the goofy shit. But from the get-go, there's this sort of quality to his character that that goes far beyond being just sort of like chaotic and goofy. Like, I mean, he has that mantra that he he You know, invokes uh, throughout the film and and as we were sort of discussing off the pod even becomes like a part of this this song with less than Jake and and his like refrain that that he's uh, or I guess the the chorus in this case that he's he's uh, saying like throughout the film. I'm a dude, he's a dude, she's a dude cuz we're all dudes. And it's almost this like utopian rallying cry for for like gender equality and and for, you know, camaraderie regardless of like who you are and what you look like and where you come from, you know? We're all dudes. Like we're just dudes in this beautiful world and like if we just hold on to that, if we don't lose sight of that, like we all are elevated together like we all can have pleasure and joy and warmth and and positive experiences so like from the get go i'm like i'm i'm getting that this just feeling uh, that the world could be such a beautiful place if we had his perspective If we were all
3: dudes. If we were all dudes. That was hitting so much harder on this watch for me. It was nice returning to something that was also this inclusive for like a major production at the time. I mean, just thinking about the fact that it is a film centered around two black leads and then throughout the rest of the cast, it's like a very diverse cast. And it is one that its mission statement is I'm a dude, she's a dude, we're a dude, we're all dudes. Like it is inviting everyone and you know, I. that's why I'm so glad I, I chose this as, like, my sick day film, because while I was watching it, too, I was weirdly thinking about from Twin Peaks when they ask Major Briggs, like, what do you fear most in the world? And Major Briggs says that love may not be enough. And while watching this film, I felt that this film's vision and mission was to say that love can be enough. And that is what ed represents because he is nothing but love and even in the face of some betrayal and him being cheated out of certain things that were his due he only sees the world through love and connection and other people in the film admire him for that as well it's just very beautiful
2: and yeah his his whole worldview then is reflected in the good burger and and the good burger of course is the small town burger joint, right? Uh, It's the 90s folks, like the corporations, they've been here a while, McDonald's, you know, Mondo Burger. Uh, And so everyone who works at the store is like, or the store everyone who works at good burger is yeah a weirdo you've got the fry cook with an oxygen tank abe vigoda like you know dropping sardonic one-liners like he's in an albert brooks film i should have died years ago
0: (laughs) dude i saw him as like as like a like something straight out of like a beckett play like there's this amazing moment uh early on when, when, you know, the store's closing, you know, it's the end of the day and he just like, he just says this one line, you know, he goes, closing time at last. And that's like, (laughs) it's not like a joyful kind of delivery. It is this like, like something out of like waiting for Godot. And, and it's yeah. like what he's talking about is like this 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 hope that that he's gonna die, you know. Like he said, like <laughs> I've I've been alive too long. I want to die. And and he's wishing for this like sweet release that that remains elusive, you know. Like closing time at last. Closing time is a joke to him because as we discover, he like takes it even further than Ed. Like he lives inside the good burger. Like Otis is just is just permanently yeah. there. You yeah, know? He's trapped
2: there. Yeah. yeah, it's revealed he's sleeping there <laughs> yeah. later. Yeah, oh, I mean man. you've got all kinds of people. You've got uh, Spatch, another one of the cooks, who's played by uh, the guy from uh, the you know the fat guy from Varsity Blues, and uh, not another teen movie or whatever. And that guy's just like eating inside He's like eating flies <laughs> uh, in the back, like, and he doesn't even say a word the whole movie. He just like grunts. Uh, so at, at any rate, it's a uh, it's this. It extremely colorful and diverse kind of you know small town burger chain utopia you know besides the fact that of course yes they're trapped in in capitalism and this hellhole of work but otherwise you know they all they're all very nice to each other and they all respect ed for that reason and
3: they all respect their individual roles at the good burger i really like the joke in that opening sequence where someone is like trying to make an order and they're like oh yeah we'll definitely help you uh where's ed he can take your order he takes the orders and none of them are willing to like take on other tasks they are only doing what their job description is and i kind of also like that commitment they're like no this is what ed does that's not my job like i'm only doing my job like this is what i get paid for even if it is a measly five dollars an hour
0: (laughs) right even the dude that's the the drive-through order like Taker, you know, like the, the drive. He's like, no, I just yeah. take orders on the drive through. Like, I don't <laughs> do the front counter. Yeah, Fizz, I don't do the front yeah. counter. That's yeah. <laughs> there's that's just a, there's an
3: ecosystem here. It can't be disturbed.
0: Yeah, but you know, Marsh, you you kind of alluded to what becomes the sort of like central conflict of the film, which is you know this dichotomy this this sort of contrast of of the good burger and and mondo burger and i also took it as sort of like uh you know mondo burger represents in that sort of like you know french new wave Truffaut kind of way of putting it like the burger of quality you know versus the burger of the auteur and like the good burger represents that because it's like yeah it's sloppy it's messy it's imperfect it's it's got mistakes you know it is it is a place that is very you know uh handmade in a certain respect and they are facing down the assembly line the assembly line absolutely you know because as you point out ryan like yes they 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 have very defined roles you know they have this this intricate ecosystem at the good burger but these are artisans working these roles you know that they they yeah. only this person can do that specific job and we see that immediately contrasted when when dexter ends up getting his job, his summer job, at the new Mondo Burger. And we see how they approach work, where everyone is interchangeable, everyone is disposable, just simply a cog in the machine works that, as you sort of pointed out, seems sort of like fascist dictatorship as well. Yeah, I mean, the Good Burger joint has, like,
3: such a personal touch. It's the kind of place where if they forgot a tomato on your sandwich, that Ed will like take a tomato out of his shirt chest pocket and like offer it
2: to you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They
2: really take care of you. Yeah. One of his personal tomato slices. Yeah. And the personal touch uh, is elevated even further when uh, they're being obliterated by the corporate competition when Dexter discovers that Ed just has his own personal sauce that he carries around. And again, one of the one of the virtues of Ed is that he literally does not understand the concept of money. And that's one of the reasons why he's like such a pure soul. Like for for reasons the movie doesn't explain, he's like trapped as this day laborer, but the reality of it is that, like, he doesn't care. He's just hanging out. He likes being there. He likes all these people.
0: Yeah, uh, he's got
2: everything he needs. Yeah, it in doesn't. His mind, yeah. It doesn't occur to him to profit off this sauce. You know, it's only when Dexter, who's yeah, like a like a producer, you know, comes in and recognizes like you've got this sauce. This is amazing. Why don't we put it on the good burgers? That's an amazing scene. And that is something that really affected
3: me as a kid was everyone's reaction to that sauce. Cause it's this impossibly good tasting sauce. Only thing your brain can do is try and imagine how fucking good it could possibly taste Uh, and it's like electrifying because that scene's so funny you know they're passing it around and everyone and the moment the sauce touches their tongues it's like a lightning bolt struck them and they can't believe what they're tasting and they're like where is this where did you get this I mean it's so extreme that when Otis tastes it. He says, it makes me glad I'm not dead. (laughs) He was able to eat that sauce, you know? And it is funny thinking about, yeah, Ed, like, having no concept of money. I guess there's a little bit of reality that comes in when we sort of like indirectly learn that he lives with his parents because he has a heart to heart with Dexter on the roof at one point when they finally get to hang out and Dexter talks about his absent father and his own struggles with his family and moving around a lot. And Ed's like, yeah, I, you know, I can't remember what my dad looks like either. But I at least I get to see him every day, <laughs> you know. It's, so we know he at least like has a home that's like being
0: cared for by it. like his parents are maintaining it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's also for me when I really like you know connected with him as a materialist because you know they're having that moment on the roof and and yeah we we see uh, that that Dexter is you know, sort of a, a a troubled, busy mind. And he's thinking about the future and he's thinking about life and value and worth and money and, you know, all these things. And, and he asks like Ed, you know, like, what do you do up here on this roof? Ed, Ed sort of invites him. This is my spot. I like to come up here and think this is where I do my thinking. And, and Dexter's like, well, what do you, what do you think about up here? And he said, (laughs) well, well, Good burger, squirrels, cardboard boxes, things that are sticky. You know, it's like just substances, material. Like that's what he thinks about. He thinks yeah. about the substance of life, of the world, of of the haptic, you know, things that we can wrap our hands around, things that we can feel and experience, you know, not abstract concepts for him, but, you know, things, practical things. And that's ultimately what like, led him to even develop this sauce because it isn't willy-nilly. Like, he has a particular recipe and it's a very, like, intricate recipe. It might seem very chaotic in the way he starts to assemble it, but, but that's the thing, you know? For him it's made of stuff it's made of things that that are in this world and the things in this world can as you pointed out Ryan bring us sweet release and joy and and fill us with wonder and awe you know as the as the manager like exclaims what in the name of ground beef like what is this <laughs> you know like how can we have those things how can we have those feelings invoked within us well through the stuff that's in this world, you know, we don't need to like conjure up something that doesn't exist. Everything is here for us to to just be a good dude and to and to and to appreciate the bounties of of the world that we that we find ourselves in. Again, and as you point out, the feeling that these things can just bring all of us joy and that's what they should do. He wants to just give the recipe out to people. He's like, "I'll tell you right. exactly what's in it." Like yeah. it's not magic. <laughs> like it's just here, and it's it's Dexter that's immediately like, shut the fuck up. We've got to
2: protect this you need secret. need to learn something about economic espionage. <laughs> right, yeah, know? we've got
0: to commodify this secret that's that's there.
2: Yeah, and contrast that with what goes on at, at Mondo Burger, where once Good Burger has their sauce going, and now they're the, the favorite burger on the block— the Mondo Burger doubles down by, you know, injecting more, like, steroids <laughs> or chemicals yeah. into the burger in this very inorganic way. And even, of course, the way Kurt addresses the workers, right? There's a, the moment when Dexter gets his first job at Mondo Burger and is fired within, like, you know, the first 20 minutes of him working <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, immediately. Uh, and Kurt gives a speech. He says,
0: From now on, your life is Mondo Burger. You can forget about your friends. You can forget about your family. Because Kurt is now both your mother and your father. Kurt must look awfully strange, naked. (laughs) Who said that? Who talked while Kurt was talking?
2: He's developing a cult of personality. Yes, he is developing a cult of personality, and that's so different from the collective at Good Burger, which, yes, there's a manager, but it also just seems like the manager is very, like, put upon and just one of the crew as well like not uh, not the owner
3: yeah mondo burger's approach is distinctly american too because their impulse is just to make it bigger
1: Mm -hmm. you know like
3: they like here the good burger has a quality product they have sauce they're they're, it's like driving people nuts like how can we compete we don't have the sauce like let's just inflate these burgers let's make them we're supersizing them essentially and that's their way of destroying the competition And there's a
2: really great moment when Kurt tries to buy off Ed and get the recipe for the sauce, and and Kurt's trying to, like, (laughs) bribe him, and he's like, Three years,
0: and your manager still only pays you five bucks an hour, man. Really? Cool! (laughs) Well, five bucks an hour is cool. How does... Ten bucks sound. Ten bucks. I don't know.
1: Sounds sort of like... (laughs)
2: And Ed just takes money and starts listening to it. Yeah. He's a
0: materialist. Like, (laughs) it sounds like crinkling paper. Like, that's what it sounds like.
3: (laughs) It's not an abstract concept for him. And it's like, yeah, and it's the extreme opposite with Dexter, who's obsession with money is getting in the way of all of his relationships you know he's not able to develop any meaningful relationship with ed initially because he is just trying to think about ways to capitalize on this sauce in order to get him further out of debt and i guess i do want to just rewind the tape a little bit because we glossed over one scene that really not like knocked me out this time around because it's funny returning to a sick day film uh that you watched a ton as a kid and you're watching it and you're like yep like, I know every word that's coming out of everybody's mouth the moment they—just before they say it, right? It's like listening to a piece of old music that you're extremely familiar with. And w- one thing I did not remember was the the scenes with Sinbad, specifically just the things that Sinbad was saying. And oh, it's yeah. amazing that it's in a film like this. So, like, Sinbad, his teacher, Mr. Wheat, even Dexter rags him for it. He calls him Shaft, you know, because he has— Uh, He's got his afro. He's got a very colorful, somewhat 1970s outfit. It's sort of unstuck in time because it's also, like, firmly in the 90s.
2: He's like a parody of a civil rights activist in, like, in the 90s. Like, this is what became of a guy, you know, who marched back in the day and now he's wearing some goofy-ass peace sign shirt with a clown collar and he's a hypocrite. Like, that's what—that was, you know, for me, the big— of revelation on this viewing is seeing this satirical character, this sellout, because he's concerned about his car and how much it costs. And there's even a very biting line when uh, he's threatening Dexter being like, well, you got to pay for all this. You don't have a driver's license? No. I know you don't have no insurance. Yes, I hate to do this, young man. I hate to put a black man in jail, but I'm
0: gonna have to call the police. Black man in jail. I hate to do this. You ain't got the. I'm just a kid. And it's. That's like, what I was rewinding
3: yeah. to. Yeah, it's <laughs> fucking insane. I could not believe he said that. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, you don't, you, you know? you don't typically hear that in like a children's comedy from the late nineties or even a Nickelodeon production. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: And well, yeah. And even being able to understand the subtlety of like, what's going on with this guy as this, you know, this satire of this kind of like sellout liberal. Yeah. Uh, kind of guy.
0: Yeah. Very, 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 very concerned about his $22,000 infinity. His with,
2: Acura infinity. Yeah. You know? with, with its <laughs> Detroit, Detroit leather. <laughs> 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 yeah. Dude, it's <that's> awesome.
0: <laughs> it rem- (laughs) reminded me just how fucking good he is you know he's in this kind of like throwaway role but as you said he is nailing the subtleties of of the joke that like his character is supposed to like you know kind of represent and and he is just so great in every moment that he pops up in this film it made me like really long for like more sinbad
2: yeah because there's a good repeating gag where his uh Again, you know, showing how he's like this bourgeois guy, like he's he's putting out his his new mailbox that inevitably <laughs> gets destroyed by Ed or because of Ed uh, in multiple scenes, and yeah, you see him with his little house and his nice lawn and his little mailbox, uh, and yeah, he's this. You know this foil to Ed and Dexter as like he's the man. He's the high school teacher. He he's from the institution. You know mm-hmm. he's not cool. Yeah. He's not down with the surreal burger universe.
0: Exactly. Yeah. He says one. He says one thing. He does another. Yeah. And then very pointedly, you know when he's he's confronting uh, Dexter with the, the estimate for the damage to his car, you know, and, and just sort of, like, dropping this this bill on him that that he's now, like, extorting him for, basically. Like, uh, he then says, all right, enjoy your lunch. I'm going to go get mine at Mondo Burger. Like, he chooses yes. the, yeah. the, the corporate sellout mm-hmm. burger uh, in the town, you know? He doesn't, he's not buying locally,
2: you know? No, no. One of my favorite things I noticed about the film this time is that while Dexter is hired as as a delivery driver it seems like every time they go on a delivery Ed actually drives what's up with that yeah well
0: I mean I I kind of feel like he built that car the burger mobile like yeah. he's the that's only like, one that could run it. Yeah. Yeah, like he's the he's the only one who understands the intricacies of like however that thing was like designed. So, and by the way, that burger mobile. Again, you talk about production design. When that thing when the, like the garage door goes up on the burger mobile, like my heart was soaring. Like I was just so filled with with just like just wonder and joy. Like it was really <laughs> So amazing yeah, but to see, see
3: now me as an adult watching that movie, I was like a little scared at the practicality of it because that bun on the front is so high up. I like cannot imagine. You can't see anything beyond that burger bun, like <laughs> well, from the windshield. It's the like I. News,
2: <laughs> the good news is that Ed doesn't care. Yeah, yes, exactly. Know? And, uh, and exactly. I wrote there's a, there's one particular sequence when they're out on a delivery, and I wrote down in my notes. Ed simply does not believe in rules slash live on planet Earth. And that's <laughs> yes. how he drives. Like he drives like a maniac on all sides of the road. It's how he rollerblades. You yeah, know. he's just chaos. And and this leads to them hand delivering good burgers to Shaq in the locker room, and they burst into the locker room with chariots of fire playing. Delivery! Sha uh, it, it's awesome and and if you think oh it's just a cheap cameo like it's much more than that because they're like hugging Shaq and and Ed is doing uh, his Ed stuff and, and Shaq is bemused by this and says you're not like other people are you? Yeah. And then Ed hijacks the mic and starts like mugging on national television or whatever. Like a, yeah, he just starts singing his maniac. mantra, you know?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's, <a> good <laughs> yeah he's, he's trying to like, you know, spread the word. The, his the, gospel, Ed's gospel. Yeah. The dude word, man. Whoa, I've never been on TV before. Whoa, hey, I'm a D. He's a D. This
2: guy's a few tacos short of a combination, please. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest, too. Like, I was losing my shit during uh, the, the series of uh, physical uh, comedy with Carmen Electra on the double yeah.
0: date. Dude that i mean that whole sequence that uh, the whole sequence is amazing you know because yeah that's you know she gets brought out by kurt uh, as a honeypot, you know, she's now uh, going to be used as a as a sex weapon to try to get to Ed and, and get the the secret formula, you know, for the for the special sauce. Which is such a funny
3: misreading of Ed, too, because his kid, the first thing he thinks to do is to buy Ed off. And when he sees that Ed doesn't value money, he only you know listens to it by crinkling it. Like the fact that he thinks like sex, that's what that's how we'll get him, mm-hmm. you know. Again, American American dictator values that he is just like completely misreading a man who is just
0: nothing but love. Yeah. I mean the the tone was immediately set when when on this like date where she's gonna try to like seduce him, uh, they go to the mini golf place you mentioned, the amazing mini golf place, and and she's like, Well, you know, says something along the lines of like, Don't you think there's better things than mini golf? You know, and she's trying to like <laughs> You know, hint, hint. And he just like flat out says, no, (laughs) absolutely not. You know, and I was thinking, hell yeah, I I agree. Like, fucking miniature golf rules,
3: man. The man who lives in the moment. He is there for the pleasures of miniature golf. They've already enjoyed their nice pizza. Because, yeah, I love when in that moment she's almost getting Ed to spill the secret recipe of the sauce. and, And Dexter's reaction is to like nudge... Ed to tell him to stop, but yeah, he just, like, kicks Carmen Electra really hard from under the table, and it's like, oh, it's such a nice, like, 90s-looking cafeteria of a mini-golf place, too, the colorful chairs, the floors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's
2: like the Saved by the Bell (laughs) cafeteria, you know, and they're, like, eating corn dogs, and I love how... Ed is is still wearing his uniform on the date, but he has a tie. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah. yeah, But yeah, it's a series of indignities against Carmen Electra. Yeah. He like whacks her with his golf club as he's like going to take a big, big swing at the ball because he does like a swing. He's not doing a tap. No, you know, Ed's really trying to hit it as hard as he can. Yeah, hits her with his club, and then his ball also ricochets off and smacks her right on the forehead, and it like knocks her out cold.
0: Yeah, she gets busted up and it's it's very funny because like they they were like laying on the makeup as well like to to track her increasing series of of injuries that she received on this on this date you know and it's so
3: insane when she does eventually wake up and after they separate right like the two groups of lovers they each go in their own direction and she wakes up and her forehead is just like bright red and yet she's still you know she's a hard worker she's committed she's still trying to seduce Ed even in like her concussed state and when she goes in to grab him his reaction is to just fucking flip her in the air and knock her flat on the ground because he freaks out. He doesn't know what's happening. Oh, yeah, and man. then, like,
2: hard cuts to inside Mondo Burger, and she, like, bursts in in a crutch and a sling. Yeah. It's, it's a really committed performance by by Carmen Electra as well. She's very clearly, like, game for the Pratt Falls and to, like, be thrown around in this comical way where they're all, like, yeah, they're all, like, accidents. You yeah, know? she gets messed up, you
0: know? Yeah. You know, this movie for me was like really, it was hitting me like extra hard as well, like on a personal note, because uh, during during the pandemic, uh, my uh, uncle, um, we were very close to to my uncle and his family. Uh, he passed away. And um, it reminded me of something that I hadn't thought of for a while, that my uncle and and other members of our family for a period of time in the 90s tried to become like fast food impresarios. They invested in several franchises of the Cock Robin. I don't know if you remember this, Marsh. It was like a weird Chicago, kind of like local ice cream and burger place, this place called Cock Robin. And my uncle had like two restaurants and, and then my, my, well, two of my uncles had several restaurants and my uncle Keith uh, he had one, and for a summer, he wanted to employ his son and his nephews, me and my brother, and we went to work for a summer. You know, it was basically Good Burger, and he turned the the, the place over to us, and it didn't last very long. It was a total disaster, and, you know, he got out of that business very quickly. So, like, I was just thinking about that, and, like, thinking about my uncle's special sauce, my uncle had a special sauce. And I hadn't thought about this in fucking years, you know? And I remember the the burgers that my uncle uh, would make at this Cock Robin. They were amazing. And he was like, it's all about the special sauce. And I was so like transfixed on, on the special sauce because it was something I'd Never had before. And then one day he's like, well, I'll, I'll tell you guys how to make the special sauce. And he took us all into the kitchen and uh, he got out ketchup and mustard and he just dumped it into a bowl and mixed it together. <laughs> it was just ketchup and mustard mixed together. And I was like this weird moment, you know, again, of being like a kid and like kind of having like some magic, like taken away from you, yeah. you know, but, but it didn't. Take away from the fact that it was good and I really enjoyed it, you know? Can you
3: remember the way it tasted before you knew what it was? Like, do they, does ketchup and mustard mixed together now taste differently to you than your memory
0: of the special sauce? Yeah. I mean, I think that's anything. Like, once you, once you yeah. kind of know what's in it, you, you can kind of isolate those ingredients, you know? Yeah. And that's mm. why it's so important in this film that like we never really get here's what's in the sauce. We get glimpses and they sound so much more complex and intricate than certainly ketchup and mustard mixed together. But, yeah. but then even, <laughs> then even like our brains can imagine because in the, in the movie, he anytime he starts to like blurt out the recipe, he's always like, well, you start with some lemon juice and then it's like what, lemon juice. Like what? A, right. right. I mean, like you're starting from <laughs> something that like you wouldn't, associate with, like, a, a special sauce or something that that makes you think of, like, a deeper understanding of, like, you know, uh, culinary, like, uh, craftsmanship. You know, it also, like, made me think of the good burgers, like, I had growing up, you know? Not the McDonald's. You know, kids, you love fast food. I still fucking love fast food, right? But, but I wanted to ask you, like, did you... Guys have like a good burger place.
2: Yeah, in Glen Ellen. Well, and interestingly, you know, it's the the burgers aren't very good or weren't very good. But it was more as a kid the the decor. Uh, there's a place called Alfie's in Glen Ellen and Alfie's had this kind of like medieval English theme and there were full coats of armor in this place you know and everything was like gray stone in my mind or wood you know it just had this like middle ages vibe to it and that was where I always wanted to go and drink like coke out of one of those like uh, red plastic oh, yeah. uh, cups you know very weird
3: <laughs> we had a place that it served burgers but we primarily went there for ice cream it was like called the dairy mart and it was one of those places yeah you just drove up to it like it had a really nice exterior if I remember correctly I think it's in like it's now been immortalized in one of those beach bunny videos that are like trying to showcase the midwest um, <laughs> oh. I'm pretty sure the dairy mart it's like in Huntley and I and I yeah oh. and I think the dairy mart appears in that but we went there a lot and
0: that had a similar vibe to good burger the cock robin that my uncle ran was was not good you know aside from the that like you know special sauce or whatever but we yeah. had this this place that was right next to the first house i lived in and my dad's dental office and it was called apollo burger and it was amazing because the apollo burger was like something that like ed would craft uh, it was basically just a cheeseburger that did have a special sauce that I don't know, you know, the components of, but the key to the Apollo burger was that it was also topped with hot pastrami, which, you know, isn't like that groundbreaking, but for like an 11 year old like that—that's living. Expanded my taste buds in ways I couldn't have imagined, you know. Uh, after just having like McDonald's sure. cheeseburgers, to then be like a burger with pastrami on it, you know, like what the fuck, man! And and this movie was like ringing so many of those like the the joys of that kind of that kind of like food experience, you know. There's so many like great movies about food, you know it isn't necessarily about, like, the most amazing food. And even though the special sauce is amazing, like, let's be honest, uh, you know, we've seen the standards at Good Burger, you know? They're,
2: they're not... They're not <laughs> there might be some code
0: violations yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one know? or two. Yeah, but, like, you, you don't care, you know? Like, you accept that about these places, you know? The Good Burger isn't run like a battleship the way that Mondo Burger is. And again, that's, that's the... The joy and the beauty of it, that it's messy and ugly.
2: Yeah, it's more like uh, an insane asylum, which uh, is a place that they get sent in this film (laughs) uh, and are rather uh, at home in certain respects at the uh, Demented Hill Asylum. Uh, (laughs) And speaking to, to, again, how 90s this movie is. Uh, I I hadn't seen this movie in probably 15 years. I watched it in college a lot on VHS, um, but that was a while ago now, and I had forgotten that there's a full blown uh, musical dance party inside an asylum with George Clinton and the Parliament yeah. Funkadelic, <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, they're really doing this, you know? All of the sudden, it's like its own version of thriller uh, with Kel, you know, leading uh, you know these insane people uh, in a synchronized dance yeah. So.
3: yeah that was something that made my little boy heart flutter and like a very and some other things flutter and like a very confusing way linda cartellini where she the very cute but you know very unstable woman who who tells ed like oh i i let loose all the kangaroos from the zoo <laughs> and this sequence in general kind of freaked me out as a kid because it's like not colorful anymore it's all very gray it's like a radical contrast between the way the rest of the movie looks and I you know I was impressionable so it was like it was something that kind of freaked me out like it I like was a little spooked by it you know but then I was also like somewhat madly in
0: love with this crazy woman oh, uh, and that's not like be. the you know yeah, I mean she is she is like the the absolute manifestation of the manic pixie dream girl in that yeah moment.
2: yeah and I do think it's interesting that yeah that she's in the asylum for for freeing animals right so it, yeah. it makes sense that she would you know H- help them in their escape. She's she's one of them.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's again like the sort of like social commentary that's that's even being presented in this whole sequence is that it seems that everyone is being thrown in. The people that are being thrown in here are are people who simply like aren't playing by the rules or aren't fitting in, you know? They get they get involuntarily committed by Kurt, you know, not even by like someone from the family they just like this is what can happen in this fucked up world that we live in now like somebody can just get you committed because you know you have uh, upset <laughs> their 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 sense of order in this world because yes Dexter and Ed get thrown in there, and so, so does Otis, you know? So and does Agoda, Otis, yeah. Because he's going to go to the authorities and reveal, like, their 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 corporate espionage. They try to sabotage the special sauce, and that it's that easy to just get somebody put in there. And I'm pretty sure the sign for Demented Hills, like, the, the subtitle on the sign says something like— it uses the word restricting— like yes, like that's their goal right is to like restrict these people from from the world and yet Again, in that beautiful moment, they 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 flip it on its head, and they they create yeah this 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 synchronized dance party that even the guards can't help but join in on. You know, and that's what all. <laughs> yeah, they just feel
3: that George Clinton beating their bones. You know, the
0: guards are kind of like man, they look like they're having a lot of fun. The guards are like, it sucks to be in the position that we're in, and Ed's. Like exuberance, his his absolute sense of presence and willingness to just lose himself completely in whatever he whatever he wants to experience in that moment. Like it's infectious, it's contagious. God, their escape is so funny too, because
3: they like they task like a big murderous psychopath to like help them break out through the bulletproof glass yeah. of these windows that they can't open. And yeah, just them being, like, tossed out of the window, seeing a Bogota, like, flying in the air in slow motion is such a funny
0: image. Yeah, but again, on a certain level, even, like, pointing that out, you know, like, they find a purpose for everyone around them. You know, that's part yes. of what Ed excels at, you know, is is – is looking at someone that that might might be cast off by the Kurtz of the world, by the Mondo Burgers of the world, and saying, "There's there's value in you. There's use in you. Each one of us can contribute, you know, in our own way." And and he does take that mute strongman and go. You know, no one else seems to find much much for you to do, but I've got a job for you right now. Break this bulletproof glass or whatever it is and smash it. And it's also like a play it's like Nickelodeon playing with uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as yes. well a little bit, you know.
3: Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he approaches the big strong man with love. And the last thing that's on his mind, you know, the demented hills wanting to restrict everyone. One of Ed's first acts in the asylum is he sees the big strong man wearing um, a straight jacket, and Ed's like yeah I had one of those out and they brought me in here too it sucks like you want me to get you out of there and then he does and it leads to absolute chaos but again he's, <laughs> he wants to remove these restrictions and he only wants to approach people with love and he is able to succeed that way in this film.
2: And a nice little note when they're all being chucked through the window when it's Ed's time to go out through the window which is already broken he goes through an unbroken window. (laughs) Uh, On his own. On his own, yes, exactly. the strength of his own willpower. Uh, And it's a very, you know, cut to them falling with no repercussions gag, obviously, in a deliberate way. Uh, And this leads to, you know, they've got to, right, it's a, you know, it's a 90s film. We've got a deadline to meet, you know, because the secret sauce has been poisoned. And they steal an ice cream truck to make their escape from the asylum and they're pursued by Kurt's henchmen uh, in a delivery van and of course we get you know, them chucking the ice cream, making use of whatever is around them, chucking all the ice cream on the windshield uh, of the delivery van behind them as they, you know, race to stop uh, the poisoned burgers from being eaten. Yeah,
3: because it's constantly cross-cutting with, like, a pair of old ladies having their breakfast burgers. <laughs> just, like, the <laughs> yeah. first customers into Good Burger that day they've just opened. And it's all these, like, comedic delays. Like, oh, darn. Like, mine doesn't have any mustard on and she shuffles <laughs> over really slowly. And then yeah. the big payoff is that Ed breaks in and tackles one of these old women to save her from eating the shark. shark poison, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yuck. Yeah. So funny, though. Good to see an old lady get tackled. <laughs> it's it's a film. Yes. It's the kind of film where old women get tackled. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff.
2: And uh, you know, just as we've seen before on the on the Gauntlet in in several films, we get a commando raid on Mondo yeah. Burger <laughs> as the climax of the film. And it's in this moment when uh, Dexter acts as a decoy, and then Ed. Uh, Pours all the chemicals into the meat grinder uh, and basically causes Mondo Burger to explode.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking (laughs) when I was watching this scene, I was like thinking of like the news report of like the Great Mondo Burger Disaster of 1997, where 17 people were killed and 37 injured by the explosions (laughs) taking place in there.
2: Yeah, and if you think about it, in in that moment, I mean, Ed is is a a violent revolutionary. He literally like blows up the means of production.
3: Mhm. Yeah, and he reveals after the fact that it was an extremely calculated act, which is another one of the funny payoff gags in the film. It was like, "Oh, why did you do that?" And he like reasons it all out very explicitly, very elaborately. Like, "You poured that stuff in that meat, didn't
0: you?" "No, I had to. You had to." "Sure. See, I knew if I
1: took the can, there was a good chance I'd get caught." Huh. Then I thought, even if I did take the triumphal thought to the proper authorities, Kurt would hire some high-powered attorneys who would dispute any charges brought against him or Mondo Burger by manipulating the legal system. And the way that America's court system is congested these days, it would have taken months to convict him of anything. So then I thought, I'll take the matters into my own hands and just pour the Triumphothal into the meat supply and let Mondo Burger be
0: a victim of its own foul play. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. You thought of all that? Oh, sure, I'm not stupid.
3: <laughs> and he's like thinking about the means and the short-term effects and the long-term effects, and that just like blows Dexter's mind. Yeah, dude, <laughs> he he invite he 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 indicts
2: the the corrupt legal system of America in that moment. Yeah, and as a ironic final gag as well, the uh, massive Mondo Burger on top of Mondo Burger comes crashing down. On Mr. Wheat's car, newly fixed car, and Sinbad is livid. But You know, again, it serves him right for being a Mondo Burger-loving hypocrite. A class traitor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's such a touching moment, you know, that you were just talking about, like, when, when Ed reveals, like, he, he had fought, like, 17 steps ahead in this plan. And he just, you know, obviously Dexter's like, oh, my God you know very astounded by this and uh, ed says sure i'm not stupid <laughs> 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 and it's just this amazing moment you know where uh, everything kind of comes into focus
3: yeah i it, it was in that moment too where the it had a line in the film that was like the hardest i laughed while watching it and it is also like wrapped in this very touching moment where, you know, they're talking about, you know, at this point, Dexter now realizes he's been cheating Ed unfairly because he made him sign a contract earlier in the film where he was getting like 75% of the bonus earnings that Ed was making. Yeah, for it, was, his it, sauce. Was, it
0: was an 80 20 split he came up with. <laughs> yeah. Something
3: like horrible and absurd. Something that like other coworkers found out and were like accusing Dexter of taking advantage of Ed. And after seeing this act of heroism, Dexter decides that he wants to, like, come clean and, like, let let him know. And he says, like, look, Ed, about this contract, man.
0: Uh, what did you say we just forget it? Uh, you don't want to be partners? Well, no. See, is it because I'm black? <laughs> no, it's not because you're because I'm All right, look forget
3: it. <laughs> 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 and I was like howling. Yeah. An unbelievably funny gag.
2: I'm pretty sure Keenan is actually laughing in that yeah. shot.
3: Like it feels he, ad-lib. They're you know, like it's so good.
2: In a sketch movie tradition, like there are a couple moments when Keenan is legit cracking uh because of Cal. Like oh, yeah. in this yeah. movie. And a couple people mm-hmm. you can see are like losing their shit uncontrollably as actors because of Cal Mitchell.
0: I mean, yeah. he, like the character, is is so committed to the performance. Like, he's so present in this alien that he's kind of crafted here, you know, that, that is being presented. And to go back to something you said earlier, Ryan, like, I really, by the end of the film, was like, why didn't this dude become a fucking star? Like, this is yeah. great you know like he's so talented his his comedic timing his physicality his presence yeah his in certain respects ability to ad lib to to just just put a little bit extra on whatever the line was that made me just kind of wonder like why didn't he become so much more of a of a presence in in comedy films.
3: Yeah, I feel like, you know, watching this film again, I I felt very warm watching it and there were so many things that held up and I was like, glad they did. It still made me laugh. It still made me feel good. But it was when I was doing research around the film and, you know, thinking about, ah, why didn't, you know, why didn't Kel make it? And I was thinking about like, well, what's the status of everybody else? That was kind of a grim exercise. That was not something I'd recommend doing on a sick day. You know, I was like, actually, I was like unfamiliar with the, I didn't know that Dan schneider was canceled because he was like posting a bunch of tweets of like children's feet covered in ketchup from all his nickelodeon shows that he he ran the like the the manager at good burger and he oh, apparently would run nickelodeon like kurt uh, at mondo burger he was like draconian and he had like a strict quality standards um seems to not be a hard cancel i think he's st- still like working at like <laughs> But There's, it was yeah, like no a, such thing. yeah, that was like a kind of a haunting thing to encounter. And even just <laughs> looking up um, some of those all that cast members, like when the woman, uh, Lori Beth Dernberg shows up, she's oh, like yeah. plays one of the customers that's like doing her goofy like accent. Like she's, she was like the young woman in her twenties who was always playing a 45 year old woman yeah. in all of the skits. She was she Kathy just, like, Bates. Exactly. She was playing Kathy Bates. Um, and that was, that was. That wasn't super pleasant, like, looking up what she's been up to, because she's just, like, touring with some of the other all-that people, like, at conventions, and, like, everything about her life is just targeting 90s kids and being like, feel that feeling again. Yeah. Like, come and see me, and I'll do those voices, and I'll make those noises. Um,
2: or, or... You could check your research and, uh, like me, know that she's in the terrific 2019 independent film Ham on Rye. She's got a little bit part in that. It's a very good, very good American independent. Um, Check it out. That's great.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I'm. You know, I'm sure she's still a great performer. I just felt bad that like a '90s star is just like relegated to like living a life like you know chopping herself around for nostalgia purposes
0: there were a a lot of stories about that era particularly between like nickelodeon and the disney channel of like how so many of those teenagers just got so fucked up like working in those places and and yeah as you pointed out the like the cold kind of depression that could be underlying all of that you know bubbly colorful happiness that they were they
2: were marketing and selling. That's like, the yeah. time honored tradition in the American cinema right there. <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely. You know? Watching Good Burger, I I felt the warm summer breeze like blowing through my, you know, into my face as I was imagining myself driving around the Burger Mobile with the windows down or rollerblading, you know, frantically to get to my summer job. And that's one of the things that were welcomed with immediately in the other film we watched so much summer breeze the freedom of riding around on your bicycle and feeling that midwestern humid humid air warm your heart Uh, and it is something you know yeah i'd never watch a film set in winter on a sick day i want to
2: watch movies like these to feel good And it also opens up with a a big weirdo, Uh, and this big weirdo, Dave Stoller, is by the end of this film going to directly and indirectly touch a lot of people in in a similar way to Ed, and and maybe in a a less obvious Mm. way, but uh, I was... You know, I was thinking, you know, God, are we really good? Is there really going to be that much, you know, to, to compare these films? But I think, yeah, Dave and Ed are similar characters, or at least have certain similarities in their eccentricity, how they affect other people. And then otherwise, of course, there's, yeah, this sort of working class or labor-oriented themes of both movies, obviously, uh, that are very present as well.
0: Yeah, and questions of, like how do we want to live our lives? You know, uh, do we, do we want to aspire to, to something, uh, that we, we, we think we should be doing right by someone else's standards, by the standards of living in the neoliberal capitalist hellhole that America is, or, or can we simply focus on the simple joys of, of being present, of being alive, of the, the, the sun on our face, the the friends we have around us, that sort of thing. I, I actually found them both quite um quite similar in that, you know, in their heart about the importance of like letting go of certain things and the importance of, of holding on to, to certain aspects of Of maybe like childlike wonder and innocence that somehow gets like stripped away from us as we get older, as we mature, as we enter the working world, as we leave high school. I mean, both films like are kind of addressing that, you know? I also feel like just the elite. University in this
3: film is kind of the Mondo Burger of the uh, absolutely. town. Absolutely, you know the cutters are
2: themselves the type of people who would work at Good Burger. Yeah, and and for the listeners or, or anyone who hasn't seen Breaking Way, the townies in the film are referred to as cutters because they are the children of. The men who cut the limestone that created all the beautiful buildings of Indiana University. And so there is this explicit class element where... You know, all these characters that we're following, their dads, you know, built this university and they themselves are excluded from it. Right. And so it is very much that dynamic. Uh, and just like in, in Good Burger, we have Kurt uh, as the foil, as this, you know, fascist uh, fast food impresario in, Breaking Away, we have Rod the frat boy, uh, who's kind of playing a similar role as just this kind of, like, representative of the other, uh, you know, the other class, the higher class, you know, the oppressor, um, as it were. And it's funny, you know, watching Breaking Away, I almost
3: thought, at times, I eventually got over it, but I almost thought Dennis Quaid looks so much like a a star like a man who is going to be a star in the making like this guy is going to be an a-lister hollywood celebrity well yeah but it's like compared to like someone like jackie earl haley who like looks like a cutter in indiana i mean paul dooley looks like an american dad (laughs) you know he's as authentic as it gets yeah
2: He's yeah, amazing. And, and interestingly, you know, this was only, I think, one of Dooley's first films. He'd only been in a couple Altman films prior to this because he was, like, discovered by Altman. And Dennis Christopher was also uh, kind of discovered by Altman. And I, I don't know if you guys know this, but it, it ties into uh, the film itself, so I have to share. But Dennis Christopher, who plays Dave, was discovered by Fellini. Hmm. And he's in <laughs> yes, and he's in Roma as like an uncredited hippie. And Fellini discovered him because Dennis Christopher was living in Italy because he he has he's half Italian has Italian roots, and he was kind of accidentally cast in this film because he was trying out for the Stern role Cyril. And one day they were like, "Oh, this actor's late. Can you read for Dave?" And there's all the Italian stuff. Yeah, and he starts. You know, leaning into in. yeah, he knows yeah. Italian. He knows all this stuff. He lived in Italy. He was in a Fellini movie, right. and the casting people and Peter Yates have no idea that that's like part of his background. And from that wow. moment on, they were like, "Just keep reading for Dave," <laughs> you know, yeah. "keep reading mm-hmm. for Dave." And so, you know, as the film opens, it's like. Dennis Christopher as Dave you know saying Italian shit on his bike and like really leaning into this exaggerated version of an American becoming obsessed with Italian culture he was as normal as pumpkin pie and now look at him
1: his poor parents.
0: And isn't the cat named Fellini? The cat is he has named a cat Fellini. named Fellini. Wow. Exactly. Okay. And so. Paul
3: Dooley very clearly <laughs> says, like, no, no, we will have no enies in this house. This cat's name is Jake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Dude, the dad, I mean, the oh, dad man. is is so incredible in this movie. Like, so funny. Everything he says. I was laughing at just the delivery of every line, just this, this harried, like put upon Midwestern dad that's now being forced by his wife to eat vegetables and all he (laughs) wants is just something fried and particularly like a fried potato, you know, that scene where, you know, after it's been revealed that she's put him on this restrictive diet because of like heart troubles or something like that, you know, and, and she rewards him for a moment of like holding his temper by making him like eight or nine french fries like it's a very small amount of fries and they're like being presented to him on a plate like it's this special treat and then you know he walks away from the table for a moment and his son dennis (laughs) christopher yeah he sits down and just absent-mindedly just starts eating the small amount of fries just shoveling them down i like i felt his anguish when he like re-entered the room and saw his fries like gone (laughs) like
1: stop what the hell are you doing? Them's my french fries.
0: Oh, Mama. Evelyn? Oh, my
2: God, what's the matter? Mi
1: quartier.
0: My heart.
2: Oh, my heart? These
0: damn French fries. Hey, they're my damn
3: French fries. At least Dave wasn't acting like Ed and sticking the fries in his ear. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Paul Dooley would have really hated that. So
2: the, the the family dynamic of the stolers is at the heart of the film, and it's Dave uh, who's obsessed with cycling and be, pretending to be Italian. And this is also because he won. A Masi, Italian bicycle, in a race that he won. And this further developed his, you know, cultural obsession. He's like listening to tapes about how to speak Italian and listening to Italian music. Meanwhile, he's got his parents, salt of the earth, Indiana working class. His dad was a stone cutter who now runs a used car lot called... Campus cars, and he sells lemons to college students. (laughs) Those are some sour lemons. And it's a really, (laughs) it's a really beautifully written character. In that, there's so much that's just implied in his situation and his character because it's like he is ashamed that he's a used car salesman, but he also doesn't care because he's selling the cars to the rich college kids. But he obviously wants more for his son. And, and the, the sad thing for all of these kids is that they can't even become stonecutters because there's no more jobs. And so this film is like very much this like post-deindustrialized American tale of like mm-hmm. all these guys' dads, hey, they had hard lives, but they had a job and they had a job their whole life and it was backbreaking labor but they raised their kids they had families they had houses yeah. you know
0: and even if those jobs are like gone they you know there's this beauty of of him being able to like look at those amazing buildings those limestone buildings that make the campus at Bloomington like just so uh, breathtaking I mean, those things are like monuments and they're going to stand forever. And, and, and he does look upon them with pride. Like there is again, something like material that they built, that they created. And even if they were excluded from those buildings and there's so much bitterness about that for him, there is still this, this, this deep, deep well of accomplishment in like just that process of knowing that hey I built something that now all these fucking spoiled brats like just walk by without a a second thought but like I fucking built those things
2: you know and in a poetic note the the children all swim at the quarry where they dug all the stone yeah. out of I think he says like you swim in the holes we dug
0: yeah you know it's a beautiful line the the, the movie's full of those beautiful lines it, it should come as no surprise that it won the best screenplay at the Academy Awards that year because like Watching it again and really paying attention to like the intricacies of the dialogue and the uh, sort of like implicit pain in so much of what's being said and the the dry humor. I mean, it's it's a it's a very, very, very like nuanced and layered exploration of longing and loss and desire and hope i mean it's it's like just so 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 touching like every every encounter that people have in this film
3: yeah i mean with in the fear of like jumping too far ahead i mean i can't help but bring up the scene when paul dooley does go to like the stone cutting mill and it's spiritual i would say i mean it's like late in the day and he He's just like walking through and like reliving all those memories of stone cutting. And he even interjects at one point. He's like, Let me do it. Let, let me separate the stones here. And he sticks in the wedge. And it does, it feels like it's so touching because it does feel like a spiritual journey that like he's returning to that element of his past.
2: And even just the film detaching into like a documentary mode, like it's like a yeah. Kieslowski documentary for like five minutes all of the sudden in the middle of this movie. But the, yeah, I think a lot of that, Andy, you know, comes from the script. And I think it's worth pointing out, like, the origins of the script, because it is very personal. And it was written by Steve Tesich, who had a very interesting life. He was born in Nazi occupied Yugoslavia, immigrated to America when he was, like, you know, 13 or 14, moved to Indiana, went to Indiana University. And so, uh, The whole stuff with the cycling is like literally based on his friend uh, Mm -hmm. and the race and he took part in it and like all that stuff about the bicycle race like literally happened in addition to, yeah, having again, as we've talked about before, this like outsider's eye on America and American culture that like nails it beyond what any American could dream of, right? This immigrant and Peter Yates, this British guy, you <laughs> yeah. know, parachute into Bloomington and and really capture, you know, this realness, this authenticity and all this stuff. I mean, it's like, you can feel it. And so, yeah, from the script, it's, yeah, it's a very personal thing based on memory and, and personal experience, you know.
0: Yeah, because they they are able really to, to find... The beauty in so much of what could even, um, you know, on a certain level just seem so bleak, you know, that, that so much of this film is about, like, you know, sort of, again, like kind of accepting something for what it is and taking pride in that, you know, taking pride in the fact that, yeah, you might not set the world on fire, but, like, who are the kinds of people that even do that sort of thing? Would you want to be the kind of person that did that? Isn't it good to just, like to just be alive and to be alive in a beautiful fucking place like this and to have your family and your friends and, and just be yourself. I think that's what so much of what I was like taking away from it this time. You know, it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in the, the, the more kind of motivational aspect about like winning a race, you know, like, yeah, that's awesome. And that's still fucking rocks and it's still it's a great, great feeling. Season. But to me, I think again, being somebody a little bit older like and and somebody who you know at one point was 20 and was somebody full of piss and vinegar and and I just kind of wanted to smash into everything around me to 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 carve a place and to to to, to build a legacy and all this stuff and it's like as I got older I started to come to the idea that it's like I I don't want 150 friends. I want seven really good friends or whatever, you know. I want to see my family on the weekend, you know. I want to hug my fucking dad. I want those simple things. I want you know, not necessarily to be anonymous, but I like I, I don't need to be you know, on a, on a poster with the Italian racing team or whatever, yeah. right? Chisano. Like,
1: yeah, 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 you don't need a sponsorship.
3: Yeah, I kept reading Paul Dooley's character as a sort of aggravated contentment, you know? Like, there's that great moment when he's talking to his wife and he says, like,
0: I don't want him selling
3: used cars.
1: Why not? It's good enough for you. Who says it's good enough for me? You do? Damn right it's good enough for me, but I don't need any help. I mean, he'd he'd ruin me if I hired him, a weirdo kid like that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think, like, that exchange kind of illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Um, There is, like, a contentment in his, like, stage of life, even if it wasn't everything he had dreamed of. There's still things he can appreciate and things he feel he can understand to make meaning out of the type of life he's living
0: yeah he's got a beautiful wife he's got a a great fucking kid you know his kid has nice friends like they got a house like he he isn't doing some sort of backbreaking labor until he like croaks like the guy he visits at the at the at the limestone quarry, you know, like there's a much older man that's working there that he like yeah. has this connection with from from the past. And and he got out of that. Yeah. Partly because jobs dried up, but also because, you know,
2: you can't do that shit forever. That'll kill
0: you. No, you know.
2: Yeah. Because there is a sense that he has. Yeah. He's sort of like gotten into the to the middle class ish with his. You know, saved up as a stone cutter and got the used car lot. You know, selling these these terrible cars. And God, yeah. there's so many good gags of him like lying and selling oh. really bad cars to people. I mean,
3: <laughs> just like trying to push one away <laughs> as it's being rolled into the lot for a refund. He's like, "Oh, we never signed any papers." Like, you got to get that shit out of yeah. my lot. Get that
0: out of here, dude. I mean, that sequence as well. And again, it, it's it's jumping a little bit far ahead, but the fact that he basically has like a like minor heart attack or something because of that moment you know just shouting the word refund over and over
2: again (laughs) one of the great cuts in cinema history is when it cuts from yeah Paul Dooley having a heart attack to him waking up in the hospital bed all I
0: want is a refund 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 are you crazy
1: refund 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 Easy, easy easy Refund? Refund?
0: refund he just like short circuited at that moment like yeah it's like what's also amazing is like you have no idea how much time has passed between that cut too. it could have been days you know and that's the first thing he says when he snaps out of his coma
2: yeah it's brilliant there's a couple really hard match cuts like hard cuts to Paul Dooley that like really deliver because even at the beginning as Dave is, is riding down the street singing in Italian and you know the, these like local yokels are sitting on their porch, and this old woman says, "You know his poor parents." And it cuts <laughs> to Paul Dooley smashing a fly on the on the table, you know, in the dining room. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then complaining about it. it's 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 They're drawn to his Italian cologne that he's wearing or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it is so funny
3: to me, too. Like, I guess I get it a little bit because Dave's, like, you know, running around singing in Italian. He's shaving his legs. I could see why that would be an affront to, like, you know, a middle-class dad like Paul Dooley. Um, but at the same time, you'd think Paul Dooley would be the type of dad who would be— Over the moon at the fact that his son is pursuing, like, an athletic avenue in his life,
0: you know? Yeah, but I think a big part of it for his dad that really started to emerge for me this time around is, you know, he wants his son to, I think, just sort of, like, be real, you know? Mm. And he's sort of looking at his son, waiting for the moment when, you know like he he's just kind of like hovering around going like man he's he's going to have a a moment where a lot of his like young naivete bursts and he's just sort of like waiting in the wings for that moment to happen i feel like he's kind of like man i love my son but he's in the clouds you know he's he's rom- he's too romantic he's romanticizing things that he knows nothing about and he is an older man he knows what the world is like you know and and they do have that exchange at a certain point about cheating and everybody being a cheat in this world, you know, when his son kind of uh, has his, has his bubble burst, but it's like, it's really exemplified by, by something uh, he says early on when he's sort of being like interrogated about like his love of all this Italian bullshit, you know, (laughs) and like his, his, you know, yeah, his, his, his romanticizing of the Italians. And he says something that is just so, off base, you know? He goes, "Well, Italians are poor, but they're happy." And it's just again this very like clueless kind of take, you know? Like what the fuck do you even know about Italy? Have you ever been to right. Italy? Italy's the home <laughs> of neorealism. Give me a fucking break. They're they're poor, but they're happy. And I think that's it with his dad, you know? He's just sort of looking at his son as someone who's going to have to learn and he's going to have to learn yeah. in his own way. And it's it's not going to be something he learns at Indiana University.
2: It's going to be something he learns on the road of life, cycling around. And also, Ryan, uh, speaking European languages is uh, not masculine. Sure. No, I'm sure that was triggering to a guy like Dooley. Cause like he's riding around saying "chow" while his dad's trying to, you know, sell cars. That's embarrassing in Indiana. Yeah, right. This yeah. is a Ciao, conservative. Con- yeah, this is a conservative <laughs> community. All right. Yeah, that's, that's true. Watch it, buddy. No, yeah, that's very true,
3: man. I, I really, I'm. This is my first time seeing it, and I, I really, really liked it a lot. And I wish I had seen it. As a kid, I know my dad is like a very big fan of this movie. Oh my um, God, I bet. Yeah, I mean, I remember he had texted me He when he listened to the bike episode and Marsh, you had recommended this movie. He said, breaking away, just reading the title puts a smile on my face or just, <laughs> just hearing it, you know? There's so many little things in it that seem like the type of things where if I had seen this as a kid that they would have just been like stuck in my brain forever, like certain exchanges amongst all the guys. I love very early in the film when they're thinking about, you know, just yearning to get out of Indiana to thinking about, oh, we could go to Chicago and get some jobs or just like get to a bigger city, try new things. And they say, you know, Jesus never went 50 miles from his home. And then one of the other guys replies, yeah, well, look what happened to him. You know, <laughs> like It's like so sharp and it is so evocative of just like being like a Midwestern kid in the suburbs or just a small town and thinking like, I got to get out of here. And the reference point of course, being Christianity, you know, white suburbia, like surrounded by all these Christians. And it's like, God, you know, feeling restless. Like I got to feel, I got to feel something real. I got to get out of a community like this.
0: Yeah. And there's even that joke too, speaking of the Christianity with, uh, with his mom, I think, who says to him, you know, when he's in full Italian mode, like, Oh, don't tell
2: me you're going to become a Catholic. You know, like,
0: <laughs> that's that's a terrifying yeah. prospect for them as well.
2: Great delivery uh, by Barbara Barry there. Um, But also, yeah, I think what you're getting at too, Ryan, is this is just one of the all-time great Hangout films. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of the movie is just friends hanging out. And there's so much clever stuff too that Yates does, I think, with the camera and and the mise-en-scene in this film of playing with layers, foreground, background, because again, Yates is very clearly jamming on this divide their outsider status within you know the larger bloomington community and so you get a lot of scenes where they're foregrounded and the university looms in the background or they're in the background as you know the college kids loom in the foreground and there's a lot of just like beautiful interplay and in particular i always think of you know when they go and they're just like watching the Indiana University football uh, practice. And it's just this beautiful shot where they're foregrounded on the hill, just these cutters, you know, these townies hanging out, kicking it on the grass uh, as, you know, life goes on, college goes on.
0: And where Dennis Quaid's character, like, delivers that, that, like, heartbreaking little soliloquy about, you know, his former glory, the fact that he was a quarterback who who didn't get a scholarship, you know, who didn't get a chance to to go to this next level to play to play ball and how, you know, every year there's going to be a new hot shot young star quarterback starting with the Indiana University football team and he's just going to remain Mike. You know, that's what he says, and I'll just always be Mike or something like that.
1: Aren't you glad we got fired from the a I mean, right now, we'd be working.
0: We didn't get fired, Mike. You got
1: fired. We quit. Well, all for one and one for all. You know, there ain't many places gonna hire all four of us. You know what I'd like to be? Smart. (laughs) Cartoon of some kind. Wouldn't that be great? You know, like, uh... Like when they get hit on the head with a frying pan or something and then their head looks like the frying pan with the handle and everything. And then they go boing and their head comes back to normal. Wouldn't that be great? How would you get to be so stupid, Cyril? I don't know. I guess I have a heredity or something. What's your excuse, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: But you know again speaking of like the characters I think that's also something that's that's really special about this film is you know it it takes a lot of care in developing like each of these Dudes, like the the four, the four cutters, you know, the, the four friends, they aren't necessarily just like archetypes for like, well, here's the guy who's the good looking one. And here's the weirdo. Like they kind of have that dynamic, but the film like gives them development in a way that you really get to see like what makes each of them tick in their own ways. The things that they're afraid of, the things that they're facing, the things that they're struggling against. You know, there's that really like touching scene early on with Jackie Earl Haley where, you know, he's basically with his girlfriend and, and they're talking about next steps and and potentially getting married and moving in with each other and him needing to get a job if that's what's going to happen you know like we get that with with all of them Daniel Stern's character Cyril like we start to get a glimpse into his very dark family life yeah, you his know yeah oh boy yeah you know we we get those moments with each of them that that make them like these very like lived in people, you know. They're they're very well rounded in this film. So that as like we we see this story progress, like I just I feel so so much for them. I think that's what makes the film as it reaches its climax like that much more powerful because it isn't even just about one person here you know it's it's about yeah. these guys and their friendship and their families and and what just living together through this moment like means and they even have those kinds of discussions you know that on a certain level mike is like you know he just wants them to remain together like kind of like frozen yeah. as they He's are got, right like, now arrested
2: development more than any of them
0: yeah Yeah, I mean, like, he sees 20 as, like, well, that's it. I'm done, you know? Like, I'm a 20-year-old man. I'm a fucking has-been. And and it's, like, it's so, it's just, God, it's so fucking powerful.
2: And I love when uh, Moocher, you know, gets a job at the gas station because he wants to, like, get married, and so he wants some money. Uh, And on his first day of work, of course, uh, he's driven there with all the bros uh, in Mike's car, and they drop him off, and he's chastised by the boss immediately for being late, which leads Jackie Earl Haley to do one of my all-time favorite gags, you know.
0: Here's your sponge, and here's your rag, and there's your place. And don't forget to punch the clock, shorty.
1: (laughs) All right! Bravo!
2: <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs>
3: it it's something Dexter would do in Good Burger, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. If given the chance. Jeez, yeah.
0: Who wouldn't? And that's what's cool, too, about, like, <laughs> his character, like, in the group. Like, he's the violent hothead, you know? He's the, he's the like, guy with the short guy complex. Because doesn't you know? he
2: throw the first punch at the bowling alley? Yeah, he kicks off the brawl. He punches that... Rod and, and, like, ignites absolute mayhem yeah. uh, into the, like, Union Cafe bowling alley situation. We're going to have to just, like, compile
3: all of the gauntlet, like, Barroom, bowling alley or just like cafe <laughs> all the fights brawls. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah into like a massive compilation maybe we'll do a year in review and it'll just
0: be all of the brawls that we featured on go. the show yeah uh because again you know martian you're talking about this this like this separation that's being you know uh presented in a lot of the mise-en-scene like there's there's so much emphasis made throughout this film about like access and entrance and where they're allowed to go and 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 this you know this sort of like territorialization that they're all kind of like bucking up against and we see it like starting to work both ways because for them you know they see the quarry they see this 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 you know this this pool now in the quarry as kind of like This belongs to them. You know, the college kids, they've got the campus. They got the beautiful campus. They got, as Mike points out, indoor and outdoor swimming pools. Like, we've got this. And the college kids start to show up there. Start to start, you know, they start to swim in their water. And so they start to move in on campus and go to the campus bars. Yeah, the Union Cafe. And, like, Mike's brother, the cop, like has to intervene at a certain point and and starts to like lay out the rules like you know, dude, like you're not supposed to be there, you know you're not supposed to go where they go, but what's ultimately so crushing for Mike is there's no cop telling the college kids they're not allowed at the quarry, you know, like it's this sense of of losing so much and and now losing what little you have left that belongs to you in a world where, where you, you, you don't seem to get anything. Like no one's handing out mm-hmm. anything to you. And that's why like the rod character becomes a sort of like no pun intended, but like a lightning rod for, for a lot of that anxiety and a lot of that frustration for, for him and, and for the other guys. Like, and it's like unfortunate for Rod. Cause like, you don't get, a ton of like what his world might be like outside of these encounters but but he does just kind of become that like yeah he's the he's the college douchebag you know the spoiled (laughs) fucking rotten kid that's gotten everything you know like you see Mike's car and it's just like a beat up old muscle car and Rod's driving around in a Mercedes convertible a blue Mercedes Mm -hmm. convertible you know you see so much of that that uh you know, really then becomes like the onus for the feeling that like something has to happen here. Like something needs to, to, to push back. Right. And, and Mike is like kind of positioning himself as like the leader because he's sort of like making points about being the quarterback. But again, what's so impressive about the film is like when he's like forced to like face these things, he just fucking crumbles. Yeah. Like he falls
2: apart. He's not the leader, you
0: know, not no. at all. And I think that's really like what what starts to develop throughout the film, right? Is this this like this this sense of of you having to like face these things in front of you and to like yeah. dispel
2: whatever whatever illusions you might have about the world. Well speaking of illusions and transgressions within communities. The one of the core, you know, sort of subplots of the movie is Dave's uh, wild adventure into the world of sorority women (laughs) as a chance encounter with Kath. Uh, or Catherine, or Katerina, as he calls her. Uh, he has Dave has a chance encounter with her on campus. He picks up a notebook she dropped on her scooter, and returns it to her. And in a moment of romantic improvisation, Dave pretends to be an Italian exchange student. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so for about half the movie, he has like an, uh, this this budding romance uh, with this woman who uh, is also kind of like, da- not, is she dating Rod? Or are they just like connected through like fraternity, sorority and like... I couldn't figure it out. I think the idea
0: is Rod... Likes her, you know, Rod is is
2: is courting.
0: Right. Yeah. In that sense, again, of like, well, naturally, I'm the the hot, rich college guy. I can have anything I want. And and he
2: wants her. Of course, she doesn't really want him. No. And so, and so Dave pretends to be Italian in a series of, you know, t- touching and, and comic, uh, you know, date scenes. And again, I think Dennis Christopher is absolutely nailing the complexity here of, you know, it's like, it is passable, but it's also not good. No. You know, his no. whole act, no. you know?
0: Um and that's the thing. That's the, There's only one moment in this film that that just, like, I just kind of, like, shake my head. There's only one moment, because I think this is otherwise, like, a perfect film. But, like you said, <laughs> this, like, romance, like, blossoms and develops, and they're kind of carrying this on. And there is a moment, then, when he does just, like, drop the act, you know? Uh, and And she seems so, like, surprised and so crushed by it, and she's so, like, hurt. And I was like really like you bought that from this guy the whole time you were buying you bought it so intensely that like now you're crying no no i know it's movie magic i know and i i get it but you know to me like i think again even watching it this time i i was like oh man you know you know what's like to me even more like in fitting with the idea of like nuance and naivete and romance and image is like if she knew he was putting on the act the whole time and that's when she's like confronting him and being like what what are you doing like why are you acting this way when he's like drop the accent like you're not calling me katarina anymore you're calling me (laughs) cath like why are you doing this like i kind of felt like for her it was also this this extra layer of yeah, dude, I know it was an act, but I loved the act. Right. Like I was buying it. Like I was into sure. it. Like I didn't want to take that away from you. You put so much effort into it, and it was beautiful. It was romantic. It was sweet. <laughs>
3: but yeah, it was a bit of a missed opportunity there. I think that would have added a bit more depth and just realism to,
1: yeah, to just that encounter.
0: Like, you know. are
1: Italian, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's
3: like
0: yeah, but still, you know, like. Guardo l'incontro. Bella che il mio cuore Serenades. Yes, the yes. entire sorority in Italian.
2: I love the serenades.
0: Oh, it's amazing, dude! Again, like the 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 feels, the heartstrings, just tugs on it all. And again, mm-hmm. the nuance and layers. Like he goes strolling off, then on a nice walk with Caterina, and then Rod and his crew roll up and kick the shit out of Cyril. But it's handled like off screen, yeah. and the very next day, like Cyril's a little busted up, and he's just like nothing happened like I don't even want to talk about it like it doesn't make it into a big thing with the guys like Cyril really hit me this time around like as like the saddest character in the film and and it's like watching his journey was just so much more agonizing for me this time Definitely. Absolutely.
3: I mean, again, I'm flashing forward to the end of the film, but like there is, you know, a big bike race and a big celebration at the end. And it's really heartbreaking when it goes through all of the guys and they're celebrating and they all have someone. And in this crowd, Cyril has nobody. He just kind of looks around and as he's celebrating, he just kind of. Glances down and realizes, well, it's just me here. I'm lost in the crowd.
2: That is an unbelievable moment. And I was like, I was like profoundly moved by it this time. Uh, And just before I came over here, I was like, I should look some shit up about this movie, you know, found a nice little like, you know, cast, a couple of the cast guys doing a thing a few years ago. And Stern was asked about that shot in particular by the interviewer who was like, you guys, was that in the script? Like this moment of Cyril alone having no one? And Stern said, it's just the Yates touch. He just did it there, like, not in the script at all, but, like, Yates knew to get that moment when they shot that scene.
0: Just kind of, like, caught him in a moment of, like, not having anybody to, like, cheer with, you know? And I mean, that's again something that wow, you know, like you said, the Yates touch. I mean, like it's no surprise the dude started as an editor, right? Like before he directed, he was an editor uh, because, man, every Yates film I see, like I, I, I look at as a marvel of uh, construction of editing. Mm-hmm. You know, his ability to masterfully weave uh these kinds of moments together you know to sort of like cut through the 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 bigger uh emotional aspect of a scene to reveal something like sad in a moment of joy, you know, to reveal something joyous in a moment of, of sorrow or beautiful in a, in a moment of anguish. Like he, he is able to create that just like multi, yeah, that that sort of like multifaceted uh, experience that makes his films so like so so unique in a in a certain way. Yeah, it's unbelievable how tender the film
3: gets the whenever it like treads into like really grand territory. It's like kind of it feels like the opposite effect you would expect because I feel like very often it's pretty easy for a film to sort of artificially bring in an element of suspense whenever sports are involved, just because it's very easy to cut a game and like kind of keep you on your edge of your seat because it's just naturally designed around the game. But then here with the bike race, all of the most cutting and beautiful moments come from these little details that he decides to focus on throughout the fanfare and throughout the larger event. There's so much importance placed on everyone's like emotional decisions in those like we were talking about dennis quaid like not being willing to confront things um and being all talk at points and when dave is injured in this big race he doesn't offer himself up to like hop on the bike and continue the race as like it's a team exchange type race yeah he's terrified yeah and it's just that decision to like focus on the wounds focus on the emotional wounds like both the physical and emotional ones um and all of these like small details amongst all these characters that make that scene so emotional and so powerful. Um, yeah, it's just the type of thing where you'd expect fanfare but it's really about small moments of grace. Yeah,
0: you know, like compare the celebration that and we've seen some celebrations uh, in <laughs> sports movies oh, on one. this podcast, you know and and think about like the, the sort of like, just like one note that the the filmmakers in those cases just tried to like bang the shit out of, of like absolute pandemonium jubilation like like you know think about like future sport or fucking you know mvp MVP MVP. and everyone just like just like speaking in tongues and like going into these like sort of religious fits and and it's just like yes the crowd goes wild like that's just it it's like no for yates it isn't just that the crowd goes wild it's like yeah people are happy and and yet also people are sad and and some people found a lot in this victory and and some people find it to be a sort of hollow victory on a certain level because that's that's really what 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 these kinds of things are like. You know, it isn't just like a, a Hollywood ending. It's the complete opposite of a Hollywood ending. It's an ending that like S- sort of, like, triggers certain feelings in you of just being like, why do I also still kind of feel sad about this? They won, but why do I feel like they also lost? And and this yeah. movie is able to, like, nail that. And and again, you know, I know we, like, jumped to the ending, but, like, I wanted to go back to... Since we're talking about this parallel editing that he's, he's able to do and, and these tender little moments, in that scene, the, the serenading scene oh, that you were you know, talking okay. about, Marsh, where he's singing and he's, he's wooing this girl, he is cross-cutting to this incredibly uh, moving moment of uh, Dave's parents, like, rekindling their their intimacy and their and their their marriage in this, like, romantic candlelit dinner that they're having. But it isn't even just that. It's also these little touches where it's like the wife, you know, takes a corsage off of her dress as she's starting to, like, you know, move to the bedroom. And then the dad, like, also, in a kind of seductive way, removes his pocket protector from his shirt, you yep. know? Like, there's just so... It's mm-hmm. it's it's like a fucking onion, you know, and it's like every slice he makes just reveals another uh, another layer of something, to to you. something so rich to like play with.
2: And it's the same song being sung at the serenade and being played on the record at the Stoller house, uh, and that's one of the things that's been going on is that Evelyn, Dave's mom has also been kind of reinvigorated by Dave and Dave's enthusiasm for life and cycling and Italian culture. And there's all these little jokes throughout the movie that she's now... At home, scrubbing the floors, you know, like Carmela Soprano yeah. listening to uh, an <laughs> Italian opera on the record player. and there's even a really good gag where it reveals that she's put up a poster of Italy in their bedroom on the door yeah and and yeah, so it's like using two different sources of this song while also intercutting between the live performance and the recorded music, like, blending. It's crazy. Yeah,
3: Yeah, it's nice seeing all the good vibes sort of reverberating around different corners of the film, because I also think this movie has probably the most romantic wedding of any of the films we've seen on the gauntlet. We've seen some, like, nasty proposals and some, like, cursed, (laughs) you know, vows and weddings throughout, but when Moocher goes to the courthouse... With his fiancee to just like kind of shuffle in and get married You know, he shows up in a t-shirt and some slacks And she's like, hey, you look great He's like, hey, thanks I wonder if I have to have a job to qualify I don't think so (laughs) I think it's mostly blood and relatives that they're interested in
1: Blood and relatives? Oh, that's great, I got
3: both of them Oh, fudge You know what? No what? I only brought four (laughs) dollars Well, it's only five I'll tell you what, we'll go Dutch. A uh, marriage life. sure <laughs> one. And I was like, this is just like the purest and loveliest thing, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's like pretty idealized in a way, but it's also just humble and beautiful.
0: Yeah, and I, I think all of these moments, you know, they, they, they all kind of spiral around this, this very like kind of, uh, like tragic, uh encounter that Dave has in the film with with the Italians. Cinsano. With Cinzano, right? I mean, like...
1: Mama! Mama, the Italians are coming! The Italians are coming to race in Indianapolis! The team Ginzano.
0: Oh, oh, grazie tanto, Santa Maria!
1: Oh, Dave, try not to become Catholic on us.
0: You know, we, we've kind of been talking about the beginning, we've been talking about the ending, but like, the middle is really where all of this you know, yeah. where all of this like you know, it, it just sort of revolves around this. So, yeah, he's he's got this bike race that he's very excited about, and and what makes it extra exciting is that. The, the Cinzano racing team, the Italian team that he idolizes is going to be there. And for him, this is his opportunity to like win the race, but also impress them. And who knows what, you know, maybe maybe join up with the Cinzano team. Show them that like he can get on their level. Like he isn't just this like cutter from this podunk yeah. town in America. He is a refined and professional racer himself and you know they have this this race it's a is it a hundred-mile race yes. is that, so it's like a long-distance race my god and, and yeah, you know, <laughs> My God. I'll tell you one thing uh, we know about Peter Yates as well. That dude knows how to shoot and cut
2: a, a chase sequence. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. And this film kind of has like several. It's got a
2: couple because bef- even before the big Cinzana race, one of the great, you know, scenes in the film is just Dave riding out on the two lane highway and having a, a sort of like duel slash duet with this semi-truck which is donned with the team cinzano brand so it's like they're bringing all the gear in for the race and he's out there drafting behind this semi-truck going 40 50 miles an hour and it's just this like awesome scene of him pushing himself and, and training right so again it's like built up and up and up until yes he finally gets to race with the big boys yeah
3: yeah, so sad. He catches up to them on the big race, and he's just like blabbering in Italian, his like goofy American Italian, just like boys, boys, you know, I'm like spaghetti. Like I, you know, I know what's up. I could, I know a couple of these words, and they're just like this fucking guy. <laughs> and as he catches up, and he thinks like I'm finally one of them, they, f- they just like they spoke him. Yeah. Or is that what you would call it? Yeah, they like stick. What did yeah. they stick like in pump. his spokes? A pump that's yeah, so they stick a bite pump and he has like a nasty wipeout, yeah.
0: I mean, and that's it, like from the get go, you see that the Italians like are not like gracious in any way. Like their, their demeanor throughout is that they,
2: they, they have nothing but like contempt yeah, for all like these. They're laughing as they're just like beating everyone in this race. Yeah. They're,
0: they're just like, they're so far ahead of like the pack and Dave like busts his ass and catches up with them and he's like pacing with them and he's so excited and they're just kind of looking at him and like laughing at him. They're like, like he's a joke to them and yeah i mean even before the 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 big like spoking like one of them like leans down and like fucks with his brakes or something like all his
2: gears right he like goes down to a really low one
0: yeah they're they're and they're dirty you know like they're they're clearly gonna win this race but the first real challenge that they get from any of these like dumb midwestern americans they just go right for the fucking like just the the, the sort of like mafia shit. They just like, yeah, <laughs> they just they go dirty, you know, like
2: they the do Guardian Mafia, yeah, they
0: fuck with the race, you know, and and, <laughs> and it's so when he falls, you know, like yes, you talk about like the physical injuries, but it's like it's the emotional injury when he comes home from that race. And he goes up to his dad and just breaks down in his dad's arms. And He calls
2: him dad too, which yeah. shocks Paul Dewey. Yeah. He doesn't call him Papa. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the illusion's gone, the naivete. Like, th- don't meet your heroes. And 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 also in a very like practical, realistic way, like what the fuck is a hero? You know, like this was just something this was an idol, something you put on your wall like a little kid, you know, this poster and like the world is full of of shitty fucking people and and you put your faith in things that are that are abstract, you know, you put your faith in things that aren't aren't real and you just you just had all that come crashing down around you. It's like this heartbreaking moment, but that's really what the film is about. It's like it's like learning to accept the reality of your situation in life and learning to find the joys and beauties, not in what you don't have or what you aren't, but with what you are. And And you said this earlier, Marsh, and I think that's really what's so telling for me, that it's like these kind of like outsider perspectives on this place on these people and and from an outsider looking at them and going I know from your perspective you might think this is all miserable to be living in this like rust belt collapsing sort of post-industrial society but like god damn it look at what you do have like and 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 imagine what the rest of the world outside of America and outside of the Midwest like doesn't have you know, and, and, and saying like, you're okay as you are, you're, you're better than okay, especially in the grand scheme of this fucking planet, you know, like it's, it's amazing to, to, to really kind of reflect on that again, like as somebody who has gotten older and who has also had experiences in meeting heroes and having those heroes let
3: me down. Yeah. And it's, it's, When he's in that embrace with his father and is calling him dad, Dooley says maybe the most, like, 1970s Midwestern dad thing I could possibly imagine, which is him saying, I I didn't
2: want you to be this miserable. A little bit is all I wanted. (laughs) Yeah,
1: dude. I mean, that's it, you
2: know? Absolutely, and and I want to return to uh, the race now, which I guess I just want to contextualize in, in uh, it, it. It really does just like glide through these plot points in the middle of the film, where you know our our cutter boys get into a you know a full blown. Full-blown brawl, as we mentioned earlier, which includes the the comic set piece of Daniel Stern having a bowling ball stuck to his fingers, which he accidentally unwields through, uh, you know, a stained glass window. But not after like spinning around a bunch and threatening a bunch of people. Yeah, with, uh, he hits a couple guys with a bowling ball strike. Yeah, he's he's whirling around. But but after this brawl, it just sort of like you know hard cuts to the present of Indiana University like dressing down the frat boys and being like, You guys need to behave yourselves. Like these cutter boys, they live in our town, you know? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Well, I think he, he <laughs> even kinda makes a point that we live in their town. Oh right. Yes. You know? Yes. That was, of course, the real president of Indiana University oh, at wow. the time performing his own role. That's a very Yates thing to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so wow. it sets up this, you know, the bike race because the little 500 was, of course, a real thing and is a real thing. And so the concept being we got to we got to, you know, be more uh, respectful of, you know, the townies. So we should invite these boys to be in the race, right? And and this sets up a whole conflict within the crew because, again, they have this attitude of being like, well, who cares, fuck them. Right. Like, I don't want to play their game, you know, that kind of attitude. Um, but ultimately, of course, they decide to uh, enter the race. And as we were talking about earlier, like, Yates's ability to kind of, like, hone in on these quiet moments just thinking of again this idea of violating space one of my favorite moments is when evelyn shows up to the race and she's like looking around as if she's going to be like found out, mm-hmm. my son, the cutter, you know? Yeah. like and the, and the dad, like, at first, doesn't even want to go. No, right? he's at the dealership listening on the radio. And those are some of my favorite moments, too, when... Pizza, too. He's eating pizza <laughs> in the car after his stroke, you know? <laughs> uh, and he is, like, his increasing, like, confidence and happiness as he's listening to the race and, like, as <laughs> Dave's doing better, you know? Just his pride and 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 just everything right like it overtakes him he goes to the track to see you know the rest of the race and again, this is what Yates is spending time on this is like the race has started and we're watching Paul Dooley eat pizza in his car yeah. you know <laughs> uh, and that's what this shit is all about because yeah. even again like we were talking about that moment, with Cyril after the Cutters win the race in dramatic fashion and Dave rides like, you know, five-sixths of the, of the course or whatever does yeah, lifting them for them. In a very you know? superhuman way. <laughs> uh, yeah. And even Rod, during the celebration, gets a shot. Uh-huh. And it's this incredibly ambiguous, like, quarter smile that he gives the most, you know... If there's a villain in this film besides, like, you know, class and, uh, you know, all that shit, uh, it's Rod. And here he is, like, kind of like, you got to give it up. I got to give it up to him.
0: Well, and it's also that that look that you're talking about is, is, and again, it hit me so much harder this time around. Like, it's also set up in an earlier bit of competition when they're at the quarry. Yeah. And Mike and Rod, like, on opposite ends of the quarry, like... You know, Mike's like enough. You're invading our space, and it's un- um, it, it, like without words. It's very like unspoken that they're going to both dive in and have a race. And I think again, in a very like kind of ritualistic uh, implication, whoever wins this race gets to hang out at the quarry. You know, and yeah. <laughs> and Mike like takes him on. You know, like enough. I'm an athlete. I'm 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 as good as you. And I'm going to kick your ass in my, in my space, in my territory. And Mike gets trounced by him in this, like this race across the Corey as they're swimming. But Mike, like in his desperation to keep going to prove that, like, you might've beat me, but I'll outlast you or whatever. Like he, like in his like rage swimming, like smashes his head against the the, the side of the core and he's like bleeding and then he's just like and he's like continuing to swim (laughs) and rod's looking at him with like this like holy fuck like this isn't a game this isn't a game to him like i might have been playing a game but like the game's over the game's over like rod also has a moment there that i think is is reflected in that end where he's like i am rich i am handsome I am going to college. I'm going to have an awesome job out here. I'm going to work in finance or whatever. I got all these things. They don't. They don't. This means so much to them.
2: In a weird way, it's like, good for them. I'm
0: glad they won. You know? It's beautiful. It really is. And
2: it's, it's, you know, again, it's like clearly just... In that moment in the performance in the direction, you know, it's not in the script. Like it doesn't say and then Rod looks over sympathetically, but he does, you know,
0: (laughs) or in like another like again, like a shittier Hollywood movie like they would have in the crowd. They would have had the moment where Rod's like, I'm so glad you won, bro. Like (laughs) you deserved it. You fought harder. You know, Like, no, no. Uh-uh. We've seen so much of that kind of one-note bullshit here. Like Yates is like I mean a master a master of subtlety yeah he's the kind of guy
3: that knows in his like studying of america that an american father would really come to appreciate his son hearing it filtered through the voice of a sports newscaster on the radio and that's like <laughs> why that scene sits so hard hits so hard he's like oh i see now you know like he, he feels that pride because it's coming from the sportscaster's voice that's a language he understands
2: absolutely <laughs> another great like tie-in to a little like grace note did you guys notice uh in the racing outfits you know the big difference between the cutters uniform which is just a white shirt with cutters written on it right uh but the other teams have sponsors did you guys notice what oh, they yeah. were yeah i i was like i totally zeroed in on the arby's team oh yeah, hell there, hell was yeah. A, there was an arby's team yeah i was just noticing how many banks were yeah. the teams as well. And so, you know, again, like whether or not that's real or a, a touch of the filmmakers, but like, yeah, here's the guys with the generic white T's and then, you know, Rod's team is sponsored by like First National Bank of Bloomington, yeah. right? So just an added, yeah. you know, layer of like what's going on here. Yeah, they're sponsored they're going- by Mondo Burger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and look, I mean, we've we've been over it, but the the cycling scene is is unbelievable. It's like fifteen minutes of all these quiet moments weaved together with like a perfectly calibrated, you know. Cycling me so sad. Like, oh my God. Yeah, there's the, so much good shit yeah, in, in the, it. The, you know? the,
0: like, just the telephoto yes, shots, especially, where it's suddenly just like hundreds of glistening bike parts like all crisscrossing one another, like and the position yeah. of his like he's kind of like setting up the camera at times, like right around the turns. So with that telephoto lens, he's got bikes like coming and going in both directions. And they have also these like sonic close ups as well of like the bike gears and the tires. I mean, it's it's just yeah. it is a, a tapestry. Yeah, they shot the
2: shit out of that. Oh, and it's like la- it's did. layered, you know. Perfectly, you know, in my opinion. Yeah.
1: Half a to go. They're going the turn number three. Number one still leading. Thirty-four coming up very close on the inside. Here they go for the second flag and thirty-four.
0: Yeah, it really, it really like was making me like look back on our our bike episode and like thinking about. You know, the movies that we watched. And, like, of course, one, we all agree, is incredibly, like, beautiful, you know, the, the the one of the films. But I was like, man, yeah. Like, Quicksilver really sucks. Like, I was like, that movie just fucking sucks so
3: bad. Yeah, a movie just with no heart, only, like, vile poison in its, in its core, you know.
2: And you, the film ends with a brief flash-forward Uh, Which again indicates like the subtleties of this film because it is brought up a couple times that Dave and Cyril are going to take the college entrance exams just to see how they do, you know, Uh, and, and as it flashes forward, Dave is a student. However, he's still cycling and he meets a cute French girl on the side of the road, which sets up, uh, of course, you know, what better way to end a film than with the freeze frame of Paul Dooley baffled by uh, Dave <laughs> for one last time, you know, as he Paul rides Paul Dooley by. on a bike. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that was my point earlier that, you know, Dave touched a lot of people, right? Like, he's the one who kept the crew together, you know, who kept the race together. His parents are going to have another baby by the end of the film. Yeah. You know. I think I think too it's that they all touch each
0: other, yeah. you know? Like they all certainly like he is is kind of built to be the 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 main character of the film, but it's like there are times when when everyone also picks him up. You know oh, yeah. and, and 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 helps him along, you know and and yeah, like it really this time around like made me think about that, about like friendship and family, about you know the people that, from when I was twenty to to now you know being in my late thirties. You know, the people that I've weathered those kinds of storms with and, and just the storms, certainly never winning a bike race like the little 500. But, you know, like there's the storms of growing up and of 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 letting go of a version of myself that was very like engineered by what I thought I was going to be or what I wanted to be. And the people who kind of like ride those those transitions out with you and can have the patience sometimes to let you go off down a path like, Oh my goodness, he's doing this Italian accent. Have you heard this Italian accent, but like (laughs) accepting it, you know? And, and, and yeah, that we, we rub off on each other in ways that are sometimes very obvious, but we, we rub off on each other in ways that, that are like, like Yates is presenting, you know, sometimes like, so almost invisible and yet they're there and if you can kind of look for them and if you know what to look for and know what to appreciate like that's the essence of growth that's the essence of life that's the essence of of being just simply like here for however long we are on this planet <clears throat> I have a frog in my throat. I'm not getting that emotional if anybody just sort of assumed that. Like my voice was breaking in that moment. But, but, dude, I will say on that note, you know, I I totally teared up on the couch watching this movie uh, again. And and I think especially leaning in because of the the prompt and because of what we've been talking about. But, like, man, like... Uh, if you haven't, to our listeners, if you are of a certain age and you haven't watched this movie in a long time, like, and you do need to pick me up, like, yeah, Good Burger's great, too. You know, go watch the shit on Good Burger and have a <laughs> have a good old laugh and remember Blockbuster Video and Fruitopia. But, man, <laughs> like, go watch Breaking Away. And if you are, are able and, and fortunate enough to be able to do this, like, you know call your mom, call your dad, call your friend that you haven't talked to in a little while and just, you know, just check in with them because this movie is, is, uh, you know, it deserves that. Well,
3: yeah, I guess all I can say is thank you, Andy, for for picking this prompt and giving us this medicine. No, um,
0: thank you. Uh, thank you uh, both. I, like, I, I, <laughs> I didn't know what you two were going to bring, uh, although Marsh made his... Pick almost immediately,
2: <laughs> it was I
0: think the quickest pick uh, anyone has delivered thus far in the gauntlet. From like when the prompt was thrown down, like it was it was instantaneous, basically. But it was a uh, decisive blow. It was, you know, it was a hammer blow, and uh, what a what a beautiful, touching hammer blow it was. So it was, but it was something I didn't realize how
3: much I needed. So I, I'm glad that that was our focus. For this week, and I guess then I would toss it off to you. To what are you know when you have a sick day, what would you put
0: on? What else can I sort of soothe my soul with? I mean, you know, I think I already like told you what mine was when I was trying to like sort of explain the prompt to you. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and I obviously I have several because my mom was was uh, quite the opposite of of Marsha's. My mother was a big advocate of the mental health day, and like growing up, like she would. Like it, it seemed like every couple of weeks she would just kind of be like, you know, she could read if we were struggling, if we were having a rough time. And she would just be like, why don't you just stay home from school tomorrow? Everybody needs a mental health day. And like her and my dad put a lot of emphasis on like the mental mm-hmm. health day. That's what they would call it, the mental health day. Yeah. Uh, and so I had a lot of those experiences. And, and yeah. Movies were my babysitter when my parents were off at work then. So I think the one I've watched the most and and the one that I explained to you already before, you know... When I was laying out the prompt was um, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. That's that's probably like my when I think of a sick day, like that's the movie that always pops into my head Um, because it is just such a like fantasia and it is so colorful and it is so bright and it's funny. It's an adventure. It moves. It rocks. Uh, It's just it's great, you know. And yeah, like seeing it as a little kid, you you kind of appreciate certain things about it uh, that. You know, when you're an adult, uh, you still like stay in touch with, but you appreciate so much more uh, as an adult. So, like, Big Trouble in Little China is probably like my my quintessential like sick day film. But, but I would also say like I first sort of got into Colombo in a very similar respect. You know, Colombo is also like a. I know all three of us are are huge fans of it, and and yeah, Colombo is is very much a warm blanket. And in fact, as as Marsh arrived today, I had Columbo on the television, you know, and mm-hmm. just sort of trying to keep riding those, those positive waves, you know, those positive vibes. And, and it was
2: extra comforting because it was the Donald Pleasance episode. And I walked into your apartment and I was like, "Wow, well, I'm very at home right now.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Always good to see Carsini, Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but everybody has them, you know, and, and I think everybody has, theirs for a particular reason. So so maybe my sick day might not my sick day movie might not be, you know, everybody else's sick day movie, but you know, goddamn, they're they're a beautiful class of film, whatever they are and whatever they look like.
2: Well it was Andy's topic this week and next week it is Ryan's topic. What do you have for us this time?
3: I originally had a very high concept topic and it is one I will pursue next time barring any other flashes of inspiration but this discussion tonight led me to come to the conclusion that we should keep up with these positive vibes uh, and do a little bit of a gauntlet marathon here because boy oh boy it was so nice getting to see Paul Dooley again and you know what I want to watch paul dooley more next week so for next week the topic is double dooley and i want both of you to program (laughs) films that have paul dooley in them it doesn't matter how much of the movie he's in because he's often a guy that is like sort of just playing bit parts but um bring me some more dooley i'd like to keep looking at him uh he he's very fun to watch
0: on.
2: as always you can follow us on twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com thanks everyone
1: when i was 19 i was working
2: on a quarry 10 hours a
0: day most of the quarry just closed Yeah, well, let him find another job. Jobs are not that easy to find. let him look at least. Let him come home tired from looking. He's never tired. He's never miserable. He's young. When
1: I was young, I was tired and miserable.